This special episode is an Organizing 101 workshop on how to revitalize a local chapter. This workshop is part of the Green Socialist Organizing Project's 101's series of workshops. You can learn more about the series and watch past sessions at greensocialist.net slash 101's. Welcome to our 12th and final 101 workshop of the year. Um, this week, this tonight, we'll be talking organizing 101, how to revitalize a local. Um, these works, these 101 workshops that Garrett and I have been doing this year um, are a series of recurring workshops. Uh, we've been, we're the Green Socialist Organizing Project, so it makes, uh, you know, quite a bit of sense that we are cycling through Green Party 101, Socialism 101, Organizing 101. Um, we have, this is our fourth of the organizing, our, like I said, our 12th of the year. Um, we plan on continuing to do this series next year, um, though we're going to tweak it quite a bit, I think. Um, we're, we're still talking about what exactly it looks like. Um, I have a feeling we'll probably kick off with another, you know, with a basic Green Party 101. Right. Um, it's important you know, for us to keep doing those regularly, um, you know, as a, an onboarding and informational, you know, um, programming about about the party. Um, but this this week we're talking uh, this month, we're talking organizing 101. Um, last month, you can you can go to greensocialist.net slash 101s with an S at the end. And you can see all the old uh, sessions that we've done throughout the year. Um, you know, our first two organizing sessions, we kind of broad stroked, uh, you know, independent bottom up organizing. Um, lots of resources there. When we did our session three, um, would that have been October? I think, no, September. Um, when we did our session three of organizing 101, uh, we did how to start a local, right? Because one problem that, uh, you know, new greens can run into is that they find out that there is no local party in their area. Um, after we did how to start a local, literally that night, I was, you know, we were on our, our project management system. And uh, I said, our next one should be revitalizing a local, because that's probably, you know, the second major issue that greens find when they, um, you know, try to get involved in the party is that on paper, there is a local chapter. Right, but it doesn't really, um, you know, exist in any real material way in their community. Uh, maybe they have a meeting once a month or something, um, but by and large, they, they, you know, try to get involved in the Green Party and kind of dead end at a stagnant local. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, <clears throat> my name is Chris Blankenhorn. Um, I'm the Illinois Green Party Secretary. Uh, I'm a former Green Party of the United States co-chair from 2016 to 2018. Um, I also served as the social media and tech director um, for the Hawkins Walker campaign in 2020. Um, and presently I'm organizing uh, with the Green Socialist Organizing Project that's putting on this uh, 
this workshop. I'll let uh, Garrett introduce himself and then we'll uh, dive into some stuff. Yeah, everyone, I'm Garrett Wasserman and I'm a current Green Party of the United States Steering Committee co-chair, as well as uh, ballot access coordinator and campaign trainer and all that in the Green Party of Pennsylvania for the last few years. So, like we said, like I said earlier, you know, we're going to be um, talking about how to revitalize a local, um, you know, tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the common problems. Well, I actually, to kind of give an outline, we're going to talk about kind of how we got here, right? Um, how we, uh, why, how we kind of an analysis of why the Green Party on a local level is in the state of it is, state that it is in some places. Um, then we'll talk about some of the common issues. Um, and, and get into some, you know, workarounds and, so, you know, solutions to those issues. Um, and then we're going to actually revisit, revisit a little bit of the, um, you know, how to build a local, because the reality is, you know, if your local stagnated, um, a lot of those tools that we had, like power mapping, um, you know, can be really powerful to revitalizing, not just to, uh, you know, even for a strong local, like, right, like, like what Garrett has in Allegheny County um, in Pennsylvania, um, there's probably things that we talked about in our how to build a brand new local and that we'll talk about in how to revitalize a local that could be, you know, valuable to them. Um, so uh, we'll end up, you know, kind of looping back around the last session, but uh, most of this session is going to be talking about, you know, the how to address local problems in your local. And I'll also say um, a lot of this could also be applied to state chapters, um, you know, which often face some of the same problems um though they're they're less um you know geographically um constrained um so yeah we will uh, let's add our slideshow and uh get started so setting the stage right people encounter the green party right they're excited to join the party they're excited to work for change um, you know, we, we always tell people the first step is to find your local party, right? We're a bottom up party. So it really is, you know, important that you try to start bottom up, right? You start with your local chapter. If you, you know, get involved with them, if there is no local chapter, you look into the state chapters, right? Um, and then we can talk about caucuses, you know, you can look into caucuses and committees and things on the national level. Um, though I don't believe there's a way to get appointed to a committee if you don't have a state party. So. Um, right. So greens in general are a passionate group, right? We we're we're excited. To, we want to change the world. Um, we're excited to try to, you know, push for our ideas. Um, and often that very first step, right. Of, of getting a hold of your local party, of getting involved in the local party, um, is the dead end that stops us. Right. Um, often the local party doesn't make it clear how to get involved. Um, the Slack or whatever chat or whatever communication system, you know, however they're talking um, is dead and, and, and uninviting and not exciting. Um, the local par parties often don't give much directions on what actions you can take, right? Or how to start a new, you know, a new organizing campaign. Um, and another problem that I see a lot, right? Um, mo too many green parties that on the local level only have a business meeting. Right. And so people show up and they sit through a few hours of inside baseball and they never come back again. Right. Um, they, it will, they're, I, I've, I've literally 
warned locals about this, right? Hey, I'm sending someone to you. Um, please don't run them off. And I've also, you know, warned potential activists um, about this, you know, where I've said, okay, so here's when your next local party meeting is. Be warned, it's probably going to be a relatively boring affair, um, but it's your, it's where you get your foot in the door and then you can start moving things, right? Um, so this, we often have a bottleneck, right? A dead end that happens at that local party. Um, at that point, people are pushed into their state or even to national involvement or, you know, just social media support, which, um, you know, isn't actively involved in the party, really. Um, and that's where it ends, right? Um, if we're not talking to you locally, if, we're not, if we don't know each other in real life, um, it's really hard to get, you know, people more engaged and, uh, you know, know how to engage people you know, from both sides. Um, it, it's, it just creates a really rough situation for party growth. And as a bottom-up party, we've got to grow bottom-up, right? So the locals are our core. Um, you have anything on that, Garrett? Uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, I agree, you know, that uh, bottom-up means that our, our locals need to be strong for us to, to really, truly have a, a strong national presence. Uh, because if we decide to do national projects, and that's not just running campaigns, uh, such as running for president or whatever, but um, but also just actions. If we want to do things like, um, you know, a march for Medicare for all or um, against war or something like that, um, it's really hard to say at a national level that we're going to do this uh, if there aren't uh, chapters that are well organized and can talk to their members and tell them, hey, we're going to meet on such and such day or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, part of building a strong Green Party movement is having strong locals and, and revitalizing them and uh, tackling all these issues. Uh, the the one I that kind of strikes me on this list that we still kind of struggle with a little bit in uh, Pittsburgh is uh, communications. I think it's just kind of a general issue with the left in, in this digital world. <laughs> We're all trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way to do it. Um, one thing that gets me a lot is uh, our communications is, is kind of spread across. Some people like email, some people use Slack, some people still are on Facebook groups. So you know, some people will uh, create Twitter groups with each other. So like communications gets split among five or six different areas. And so it, it really gets in the way where, um, you know, we're not having this kind of cohesive conversation about what the Green Party should be. Um, so uh, I don't want to take up too much on this slide, but you know, I think we'll get more into uh, logistics of things like this that are important to kind of solve as we go forward to make sure that you have a strong local party that, um, you know, can communicate and, and uh, you know, create plans of action. Yeah, and I, I, I want to add real quick tangent, you know, with the tangent off what, uh, or building off one of the things Garrett said, the National Party, the Green Party of the United States does endorse, you know, national days of action and, and um, you know, different movements and things like that. But the reality is the National Party is a confederation of state parties, right? And we get way deep into that kind of stuff. If you want to learn about, you know, how the Green Party in the United States is actually structured, you know, go to greensocialist.net slash 101s and look at our, you know, Green Party 101s. But <clears throat> because of our structure, the National Party doesn't have the ability to, you know, actually make a day of action happen, 
right? So when the when the national committee passes, you know, a resolution supporting, I think the most recent one was about ending the Cuban embargo, right? Um, that's the last one I remember the national committee, you know, approving. Um, when they do that, right, and then it's imperative that we have local parties that can actually carry out such actions. Um, otherwise, it's just kind of a decree into the void. Um, so, you know, the, the, the having these, you know, vibrant and active local parties is essential for our national party as well to, to give validity to the, you know, political positions that are, that the national party, the Green Party of the United States takes. So part one, how do we get here, right? We kind of faced in recent years, like a perfect storm, right? Um, there was obviously the COVID pandemic and that changed organizing. Um, and COVID was really hard on the stability of local Green Party chapters. I can tell you, having been involved in the 2020 presidential campaign, um, you know, our Green Party locals were really devastated by COVID. Um, you know, it pushed our meetings online, which made it hard to engage with each other and the community, right? And how to, how to actually do organizing during the pandemic. And, um, you know, as, the, as one of the main systems and tech people in the party, uh, I can say the party wasn't ready. Um, the party wasn't ready to make the shift to digital organizing that COVID required. Um, and so we were really, really hurt by that, right? Um, you know, obviously our, our base, which is largely working class folks, um, was the list of, you know, that's the demographic that was hit hardest by COVID, right? The lack of healthcare, increased work hours. Um, you know, it, there was less time to get involved in the party. And then we were pushed online. So the time that we were, you know, able to get involved in the party often wasn't as efficient as we might have been in our in our one-on-one -on -one meetings. Now, if you watch one of my systems workshops, you'll hear me preach, right, that we need to get off of efficiency only happening in these in-person meetings. And we need to get better at day-to-day, -day, you know, um, um, organizing and collaboration, on, you know, between the meetings online and digitally um <clears throat> but we I, I don't necessarily think that while it, i hoped it would that covid pushed us to that place i don't think we saw that as the end result i think we probably saw some improvements in that area but we didn't you know very effectively switch um <clears throat> and our base was hit by all the normal covid stuff too right yeah it made it hard you know and yeah we were working longer and yeah it made it harder to organize you know, but also our kids were home and being, you know, and we had to deal with all the, the psychological impacts of COVID and, the, you know, the lockdowns and everything. So, you know, it, political organizers had to deal with, you know, organizing problems on top of all of the, the you know, personal and social problems that came with COVID. Um, we've seen, you know, the good news is we've seen a, you know, working, a, a rise in working class unionizing. Um, we're seeing success in that unionizing. Um, from the bottom up level, right? Um, we were seeing successes at Starbucks with uh, Starbucks Workers United. We're seeing successes at <clears throat> um, at Amazon with uh, with their bottom up, you know, organizing in, in New York. But what we saw with in Alabama, um, oh, and this is very much tainted by you know Amazon doing illegal things and stuff like that. But in Bessemer, Alabama, when it was a top down organizing project where outside organizers came in from a major union and tried to change things, they failed, right? But we saw in, in New York, bottom up organizing, a pissed off ex-employee was able to organize and win, 
right? Um, and so that's kind of that we've seen some changes, right? And we've seen kind of reinvigorated labor come out of the the COVID pandemic because no matter whether who was in charge, whether it was Trump and the Republicans or Biden and the Democrats, workers were always at the bottom, right? Um, we, workers bore much of the brunt. You know, corporate profits were corporate profits were sky high during the pandemic, right? The the stock market was inexplicably sky high when it should have been crashing during something like that. Um, workers bore the brunt of it. And we have seen some, you know, push on the um, on organized labor front, which is good. Um, but we've got to grow that. We've got to get outside of just that. We've got to get out, you know, get into our larger community organizing, solidarity networks, and into independence, right? We've got to break free of having all of these things lead into the dead end of the Democratic Party. Um, there's an ebook linked here by Bill Barry. Um, there's a green out of Maryland. Um, it's called Organizing in the Time of pa the Pandemic. It's free, um, but it's got a, some really good tips about um, you know how to shift uh, during the pandemic. And while the you know well, while we're told that the pandemic is over, right? Well, it's clearly not. But we're told that it's over, and many people are kind of moving into the old normal, trying to move into the old normalcy. A lot of the things we should have picked up during the pandemic or the things that Bill talks about in his book are valuable to us post-pandemic, right? One of the problems that Greens have often had, and I've yelled at Greens about this for years, was that if you didn't show up at a certain time in a certain place, you weren't involved, right? If you didn't make it to that meeting, you were disenfranchised within the party, you didn't have a voice, and you often didn't have a way to get involved. Right. Um, we need to take some of the digital organizing things we hopefully learned during the pandemic and extend them. Right. And we saw that in, Il in Illinois, where I'm from, you know, we're all of our um, we had our first yeah. in-person workshop, or not workshop uh, state meeting recently. Um, but we went hybrid and there were more people attending hybrid than there were in person. Right. And in the old days, right, pre-pandemic, those people who, went, who attended hybrid, the majority of the people meeting wouldn't have been involved. They wouldn't have been able to participate because we didn't have a hybrid system before. So, um, you know, COVID is a really big, you know, part of that perfect storm that we've seen recently that devastated the, you know, Green Party locals. Garrett? Yeah, yeah I, uh, this kind of feeds in a little bit to my comment on, on our communications platforms, right? That, um, uh, the national party's national committee has a voting system, for example, where delegates can vote online. Um, but that's not necessarily true in all of our state and especially local parties. And so when COVID hit, uh, this was a, a big change for uh, a lot of our local parties. And, you know, especially in Pittsburgh, we had a lot of uh, pains around that because we had a very established cycle of once a month, we would get together and have this in in-person face-to-face you know discussion and voting and things like that there's nothing wrong with that and in fact a lot of times you know that good that face-to-face -face discussion is is really uh where you know interesting ideas are, are discussed and hammered out and and um you know uh get turned into really good plans uh but like chris is saying that um even in the best of times <laughs> that can leave people out and we literally had people who would tell us you know, uh, oh, that sounds great, but your monthly meetings are on Tuesdays, and Tuesday's my day where I work late, or you know, I nobody can watch my kid that day, or whatever the whatever the case was, right? We literally had people tell us, "I want to be an active green, but I cannot make it that day." 
Um, and then the problem would always be, of course, that if you said, well, okay, well, let's pick a different day, then someone else would say, oh, but I could do Tuesdays, but I can't do Wednesday or I can't do Saturday or, you know, and it would always be this problem. So I've been an advocate for a long time, too, about setting up uh, systems uh, where even if we have these face-to-face uh, -face meetings, we can still schedule those. But a lot of our important decision-making and communications and all needs to be on some sort of online platform where uh, everybody can see it, everybody can contribute and discuss and vote on it. And uh, we didn't really have that in place. So when COVID hit, and especially, I, I don't know how every state handled it, but in Pennsylvania, there was there was actually stay-at-home orders for a while and like just everything shut down for, for like weeks. Um, not really that long. I feel like a lot of people kind of, <laughs> you know, in hindsight, they really try to overblow that, you know, like, oh, we were locked down for years. No, no, it wasn't that. But, um, and in fact, it wasn't even necessarily a government order. It was just a lot of businesses and groups just uh, decided on their own, like, we're just not going to do this anymore. And particularly leftist groups, right? We're not going to have meetings anymore because we actually care. We don't want people to get sick. Uh, so we're not going to have these uh, in-person meetings anymore. And uh, that caused this issue where <laughs> without our monthly meetings, there wasn't really any clear guidance on how we carry forward. And so everyone scattered. And so some people said, well, I guess I'll just start writing in Slack more often. And some people said, uh, oh, Slack doesn't really work on my phone. I'm going to start typing in Facebook more. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm going to start using Twitter more. And, um, you know, I'm just going to send an email thread. And then the email thread would, uh, instead of go to a mailing list, it would, they would like type in the people that they remembered, right? And so you'd get a you get the email chains of like two fifty people or whatever, but it wouldn't include everybody in the party. So you'd have to forward it to you know, it just became a mess. And so this is really a lesson that locals have to learn, I think, on uh, how can we communicate and uh, effectively, uh, and not just uh, not just like an email blast or an email list, but a way that you can actually have a discussion. It's two way as opposed to one way. Um, and that includes the ability to be able to vote easily, because uh, it's not even really easy to follow votes on a mailing list. It would really be ideal to have some kind of system where you can log in and vote and things like that. And there's websites that do that. We've used, for example, I think it's OpaVote or something, OpaVote.com. Um, although I think you have to pay for that unless it's like a really, really small amount of people voting. Um, we should probably have a lot more of our own systems that uh, support this stuff, like <laughs> setting up our own open source things. But uh, but that's kind of the point, I think, that locals and states should think about this because the pandemic is not over. And even if you were to say that COVID is sort of over, that doesn't mean that there there won't be something new because we're not handling COVID. So COVID is, is really uh, SARS-2, right, the SARS virus. Um, and so, you know, is it going to become SARS-3 or SARS-4 or whatever, you know, we're not handling a pandemic. So like the longer it spreads, the more it can mutate into something else. Um, you know, we don't know what comes in the future. And just as an equity thing, you know, making sure more people can participate. So uh, the communications is something I really hammer on for us to think about um, transitioning to. And unfortunately, there's not like a party wide um, plan for this yet. So maybe that's something we can work on. Uh, but it kind of starts at the local levels. The, uh, the other comment I wanted to throw in here about just how, how the pandemic affected people is, for example, we have um, we have a really great candidate who was uh, running for state representative this year uh, in Pittsburgh um, who is working class um, uh, healthcare worker. As a healthcare worker, she's completely swamped with work. So part of the thing was like once she got on the ballot, she had a really hard time uh, campaigning. She did as much as she could, but, you know, when when you're 
you know, when you're a healthcare worker and you're working all these long hours and double shifts and things like that, uh, because so many of the healthcare industry has gotten sick themselves or retired or, or just exhausted from, you know, three years of fighting a pandemic and working all these extra shifts and stuff. Um, you know, it's really hard to run a campaign for office when you're like that. Um, and so, you know, we, we talked about some ways to support people through the pandemic about, you know, and supporting candidates in particular that can be exhausted with all this stuff. Can we bring them, you know, dinner sometimes just to kind of take some stress off of them? You know, can we help with other aspects of the campaign? So, um, you know, dealing with the pandemic, I think has been a lot of um, issues, but also a good opportunity for us to think about how we can organize ourselves differently. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> the party, found, you know, the lo on the local level, the party found itself somewhat, you know, kneecapped by the pandemic, right? Um, our responses to it varied, um, but we weren't in a great place as far as an organizing, you know, unit. And then you consider the climate in which we we're trying to survive, right? While getting our legs kicked out from under us by the pandemic, right? Um, Trump and Trump wannabes have been very hard on the stability of local Green Party chapters. Um, Greens have faced anyone but years. But 2020 and Trump is a new level. Um, anyone but but Trump, you know, plus COVID made it really made a really really hostile environment for Greens. Yeah. Um, and this continued, right? Um, we we saw it still in 2020. Trump's not on the ballot, right? But Trumpism is. Um, oh, yeah, we had it really hard in Pennsylvania this year. Yeah. Um, uh, the Republican in particular who's running for uh, governor in Pennsylvania um, was uh, very much Trumper, super um, extremist conservative type, uh, was involved in the January 6th stuff, like, like really, really uh, deep into that hole. And um, so the election essentially became this big proxy battle between um, the Republican and the Democrat that uh, the messaging in the media, which is not necessarily the truth of the detail that was going on, is that it was essentially a vote on whether or not Pennsylvania was going to uh, keep or uh, uh, criminalize abortion. Uh, the Republican candidate said he wanted to. The Democratic candidate said, well, I'm not really going to. Um, and so, you know, this became the answer that, like, whenever we talked about the Green Party, it was always like, well, you know, I support the Greens, but, you know, I can't, this isn't the year to do that because I have to vote for abortion. Um, and, you know, one problem with this, of course, <laughs> is a bunch of the Democrats in the state are anti-abortion themselves, including my Democratic state representative. And I have been harping on this for years. And Mine too, I can't, in Illinois. I can't get any Democrat from any, like the entire time on social media, they were they were saying like, this election is about abortion, you know, and, and Democrats support abortion. I'd always reply with like my screenshot of like my state representative saying how she's pro-life and she's completely, you know, against abortion. I'll say like, what about this? And never got a response. And so, you know, I, there's, there's the one hand where it's completely understandable that we don't want to, put fascist in office, but at the same time, the neoliberalism of the Democratic Party is sliding us toward fascism anyway. And so, you know, it's it's a really difficult thing um, that I think we have to come up with better messaging around, right? How do we grow the Green Party 
and the green message, the message for an independent thing beyond the duopoly, because the duopoly has failed us and the party, or not the party, the nation, right? The country has been sliding to the right for decades now, uh, regardless of what the Democrats say they're going to do or not do, right? So, um, you know, I, I think there is a strong message we can have about the need for an independent party. Um, but I don't know if our messaging was necessarily good enough. Uh, it, I don't think it really was good enough in 2020, especially um, to, to really overcome all of that. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at, you know, anyone but Trump continuing right um, into the 20 in 2022, and it'll be present in 20, you know, at least in Illinois, you know, 2023 is when we elect our school boards and our municipal candidates and and the Trumpers are alive and well at the local level, too. Right. Um, school boards are a big area where they've been pushing. Um, where you've seen a big right-wing push on, you know, to get oh, yeah. school boards and, and you know, really fuck up our our education system worse than, you know, the, the misleadership that's in office already is. Um, and so, you know, like, you know, we don't want to dismiss this offer out, out hand, right? There's a reason to be fearful of this type of stuff, right? Um, but we need to have, we need to have real strategic conversations we need to have honest conversations about about how do you actually resist trump right is electing biden and democrats who maintain many of the trump trumpist policies you know resisting him is that how resistance works you know and what are we actually getting out of these things um you know what, what and, and i also think it's an important conversation about long term and short term um you know it, the defeating a, a green, you know, presidential candidate, the, Haw the Hawkins Walker campaign in 2020, you know, the likelihood of us being able to defeat Trump, right, to win the election wasn't really a, a, on the table as that much, right? Um, that was it was an extreme, extreme, extreme outside thing, right, uh, bordering on nothing. So, how do we deal with that as Greens, right? And I, I, we're talking about local chapters, and we we start with it local. Right. Yelling at somebody across the country on the Internet is not going to change their mind. It, it almost never does. Even the people who do it often, you know, couch it in, well, I'm trying to talk to the people who are watching the fight, not to the person I'm fighting. But even that's not really working much. Right. Where we can change people's minds are on the ground or with real relationships with real people. Right. Um, and so how, you know, I, I think Garrett's absolutely correct about um, consistent messaging. But we've got to make sure we're taking that message to our neighbors, right? Um, on, on a past 101, we had someone ask, where do they start knocking on doors in their neighborhood to deep canvas? And I said, your neighbor. And then your neighbor on the other side. And then the neighbor on the other side on them. And then on them. And then across the street, you start right next to you and you expand outward, right? Um, because those are the people that you share common conditions with, right? That you, you live under the same conditions in your community. You have similar problems. Um, you may, you know, they're not all the same, um, but there's, there's a connectivity there that can overcome. And that's where our messaging can work, right? Garrett talking to state level Dems on Facebook and saying, well, you're actively supporting anti-abortion Democrats, right? My, my state rep is also anti-abortion, also anti-gay marriage, also anti, and she's a Democrat. Also, she voted against civil unions. She voted against marriage. She voted in favor of gay conversion therapy. She voted against decriminalization of marijuana. She voted against medical marijuana. She voted against legalization of marijuana. She supports abortion uh, restrictions, right? 
she wasn't even primaried. No one challenged her. Yeah. Right. And the Republicans don't challenge her. Right. Why would they? They've got their votes. She's going to vote with them. Right. And when you're fight, if you're fighting with someone with PA Dems, right, on the state level, they're just going to blow you off and ignore it. They don't want to acknowledge that truth because it undermines their messaging. But you start talking to your neighbor who you see has a protect, you know, get your rosaries off my ovaries sign on their car. Right. You start talking to them and you say, you know, the Democrat that you voted for opposes you on this. Right. <laughs> I funny enough, I had exactly that experience because uh, a couple weeks before the election this year, um, everyone's yard signs went out. Right. Um, and so walking through the neighborhood, I noticed that down the street, there were a couple of neighbors that put out their yard signs and there, there were two yard signs sitting next to each other. One was um, uh, something like you had mentioned, right? Something pro-abortion, right? And in fact, I think it was a rainbow flag. It was like pro-LGBT rights, pro-abortion, all that sort of stuff. But it was very clearly a leftist person, right? A leftist living person. And then right next to the sign for the, the pro-life conservative blue dog Democrat, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I had to, um, they, they, they weren't home at the time when I talked to them, unfortunately, or tried, thought about talking to them, unfortunately, but, um, I had to write down their address to be like, this is somebody I need to talk to <laughs> real soon because like they, they very clearly don't realize who it is they're actually voting for. Um, and who they're supporting, because like you're saying, this is somebody who's been a Democrat that has gone unchallenged, even in the primaries for years now. Um, and, you know, um, they hide that sort of person behind the facade. This is where I, I get really irritated by uh, so-called progressive Democrats, because um, they give the party this more progressive feel uh, and allow the more conservative ones to kind of hide Right. And, you know, um, they help kind of smooth over the image of the Democratic Party instead of what it really is, which is actually, um, you know, a much more um, conservative right wing party than a lot of people realize. Um, and I think that's part of our messaging as Greens, that um, there really are two parties, the, the two sides of the same coin. Yeah. You know, even Bernie goes out and stumps for anti-choice Democrats. Um, and he's done it for decades. Um, so but yeah, you know. Trumpism has been really hard. And I, I also want to say Trumpism is a, is a, the current manifestation, right? Um, every single election, these Democrats are often going to say, now is not the time, right? Um, because they fundamentally don't actually support us, right? Um, in, in many states, my, my, my state is very Democratic controlled, right? Um, Garrett also is a Democratic controlled state. It's the Democrats who are actively keeping us off the ballot, right? They, they literally don't want us to exist as a party. So when someone says now is not the time, that isn't necessarily an invite to argue. That's a pretty clear projection that they don't actually support our right to exist, period. Um, it's not a strategic difference. It's a, a fundamental lack of, you know, acceptance of us existing as a party and, and challenging their, you know, their claim to the to own everything right of the Demo or to the left of the Democrats, which is like everything <laughs> or to the left of the Republicans, which is like everything except fascists. Right. Um, so I think we need to keep that in mind. Right. When Trumpism fades, there'll be another one. Right. We went through anyone but Bush. Right? And we went through all of the, we went through these phases before. Um, 
you know, I know in 2020, during the 2020 campaign, Ralph Nader told us, you know, this is worse than 2004, um, what, what we were facing. And and Jill and Ajamu told us the same thing, right? Um, and Jill and Ajamu, in 2016, they tried something interesting. They tried to elevate us to see if we would fall on our faces. And what they found out was that we have publicly popular policies, right? Um, putting putting Jill and Ajamu on CNN and, and, you know, and kind of lifting the mainstream media black out of them um, didn't hurt us. It led us to great, you know, to some of our, I think probably the, definitely the best results since Nader, um, right? And so, so the best results in 20 years. So when 2020 came around, the blackout came back with a vengeance, right? Um, democracy now wouldn't even cover the Green Party campaign in 2020, right? <laughs> Supposedly progressive media was all down for Biden, you know, in, in a silent way, um, like DSA, we're going to stay out of it, which is in a de facto endorsement of Biden, right? Um, so Trump, this anti-Trump movement, you know, but Trump really scaled it up. But even after this phase, this fades out, there will be something new, right? That we have to that we have to address. So this is a problem that we're always going to be facing as long as we have a system that encourages two-party rule, um, you know, as long as we have first-past-the-post-single-member post districts. Um, so that, that's a little more into solutions, right? So we've got COVID taking out the knees from local organizers. We've got anti-Trump creating a very hostile environment. And then we've got states right the democrats and republicans in power actively repressing third parties um, when it comes to ballot access when it comes to media access right it requires huge numbers of volunteers to gather signatures or money usually both um media like i said media doesn't cover always cover um, doesn't always cover us right and we're often not invited to the debates um even independent media that's often critical of the Democrats don't raise alternatives, right? They just kind of are critical of the Democrats and it ends there. And they, oh, yeah. you know, the best result they get is just kind of sending someone out, out off the Democrats to linger alone in space, right? They're, they don't send them anywhere else to actually build an yeah. alternative. It, this is actually a really great point that anyone watching this stream, I, I really hope that you share this stream and any other Green Party content you see because that's one of the best ways to get our message out and to you know grow the party and folks that are looking for videos like this to learn more about uh, the Green Party, um, they need to be able to know where to go, right? And we need your help in order to spread it because uh, even the independent, so-called independent media that's out there that is critical of the Democrats, they very rarely speak about the Green Party or really any alternative. I mean, you know, I. I can understand that maybe somebody even says, I don't think the Green Party is my favorite, but they don't talk about any other socialist party, you know, Socialist Party USA or anything else. It's just, it it, it has this feel of just like talk radio sort of thing now that it's just like, I'm angry because I'm angry and that's what gets views. And it's not really necessarily uh, a whole lot of genuine efforts to grow an alternative. And, and that's the point of the Green Party here that we're trying to actually create that real alternative. Um, and I can say from experience that, especially as a, uh, a Green Party national co-chair, and maybe Chris had this same experience, that uh, when, when you actually reach out to uh, podcasts and things like that and say, hey, I'm available. Do you want to do any interviews? Like, I'll be on your next live stream. Just tell me when you want to do it, and I could do it. Like, almost nobody ever responds to you. It's not, it's not that we're not trying. It's that 
media very often won't talk to us and that even includes independent media um so you know um we need your help to get the message out and to really grow and i think especially if more people who are watching these media things demand that we're on there then they will eventually do it yeah and i you know thinking about independent media <clears throat> from my perspective in many ways they've just replicated the mainstream media talking head model with different talking heads and still almost and still majority white male older talking heads right um they they it's they've just replicated the model that, that they are trying to overcome and kind of in the same model as the the mainstream in the same you know vein as the mainstream talking heads in from what i've seen most of these independent media you know talking heads are in it for them right their brand is them right they're that, that's what they're they're trying to get views they're trying to get monetization they're trying to get that kind of stuff and that's the end goal it's not creating an alternative right it, it's getting views no matter how um and so yeah and then you know the final point kind of spinning off that right so the independent media that many greens think we can rely on has shown that we can't right we can keep trying we should always keep trying just like we should always keep trying with the new york times right um we should always try with all of these outlets we should try to get our access um but the reality is we we, we can't ignore the reality right we have to look at the reality and the reality is they aren't covering us right they're not advocating for alternatives they're not you know we I, there was a podcast network that did a a big third party thing and it wasn't until a couple of days before that we even got greens on the on the you know the the agenda they were going to it was going to completely exclude the largest left party in the country right in a discussion about um about third parties um and that that's completely normal and it was that one was driven by the personal opinions of the people organizing it right um many of whom were libertarians so we can't rely on the independent media to support independent politics which means that we need to create our own right um we do the last point we suffer from self-inflicted repression um when we don't put out our own media when we don't uh we too many greens are, are spending their time sharing these talking heads sharing you know progressive democrats and pushing people either towards the democratic party or towards the void um you know with a, without a plan of action to go forward i i've yelled at so many greens when i you know i see a post about this workshop and it looks really interesting but i can't make it right i, I just can't be on the zoom at that time or I'm, I'm in another state and i can't be in the room and so after the fact i reach out and i say hey do you have a recording of that no almost always the answer is no cool so the five people that were able to show up at a specific place and time are the only people that got to experience what from my you know what from my perspective would have been an absolutely incredible you know educational event like that means that that whole that, that whole endeavor was basically wasted um we you know we brought on an expert uh, this happened with high speed rail in illinois a few last year where they had a, someone from you know they had a panel on high speed rail and everyone the, the six people who there were talking about how awesome it was and I said cool let's share it to social media and they said we didn't click record then why did we do it like honest question why did we bring someone in to talk to six people 
when you know and then then limited that when when we would have recorded it we could have put it up on youtube facebook shared it across social media and gotten exponentially more views and spread our message right so we've got to make sure um that we are putting out our own media we, we have a if you go to greensocialist.net you can find a uh a guide on local media and one of the things it is it includes is what to do when the media doesn't show up right when you send the press release and they don't come your job's not done when they don't come you have self-promotion to do after the fact um, to try to get them to come to your next event and we have to do that ourselves um you know when i talk when we're talking about increasing party suppression i think the you know most egregious example of that is new york right in New York, they tripled the number of signatures required to get on the ballot for governor or president, and they attached it to a COVID relief bill to do it, right? They used COVID to triple the number of signatures, and it's now the worst in the country. They have to collect 45,000 or yeah, 45,000 signatures in 42 days, right? That's worse than almost every country in the world, <laughs> not just in the United States. And they used COVID to do it, right? Um, so we saw that, you know, we saw this in Arizona during the 2020 election, they changed the rules for ballot access petitioning after petitioning had started. They moved the deadline, right? And so COVID was in, in some cases like Illinois, which is a really outlier, we got on the ballot through a lawsuit by saying, we can't collect 50,000 signatures in 90 days during a pandemic. You can't ask us to do that, right? We did the math and we would have had to contact over a million people to get those signatures. And you don't want us coming in contact with a million people just to get on the ballot. So we want our, our court case, but in much of the rest of the country, COVID was used to increase repression um, against third party and all to independent candidates. So, We've faced this, you know, perfect storm. Um, COVID hurt our ability to organize. COVID was used to repress us further. Um, we weren't able to adapt as well, which, you know, led into self-repression as well. And then we, we were trying to do all of this in an anyone but Trump atmosphere that was really, really tough, right? So what are the actual problems that we're, you know, facing, right? It, it, these led this led to a number of internal problems, right? As as people question the strategy and tactic tactics that we needed to change, it led to internal conflict. It led people to you know leave the movement, new people to come in, right? There was turnover, um, and so there's some key you know causes of our stagnation in local um, lack of members and ways to engage, a lack of direction, a disconnect from the broader community internal conflict and gatekeeping, you know, are some of the examples we'll talk about. We did a survey um, that you uh, we, that we, you can still take it, right? We'll still be accepting data, um, but our, first, you know, our data poll that I did last night right before this um, kind of gave us an idea from existing Greens, right? Um, what the local problems they faced were. 60% of the people surveyed said that uh, lack of resources were the problem. Um, you know, about a little over 50% said burnout. Um, another about a little less than 50% said a lack of plan or direction. And that same number said a lack of connection to the broader community. 
Um, about 20% said lack of necessary skills. Um, and then we've got factionalism and inter interpersonal conflict and gatekeeping coming in around 10% apiece. Um, right. So the resources are pretty obvious, right? And, and it's in a way self-repression, right? Because we don't take corporate money, right? We have these values that we stand by and they often, we, and we're a bottom up party, right? Not a top down party. And these kind of things can create problems, you know, can create a lack of resources, right? We don't have, and we don't have donors. Um, we don't have as many resources. That's just kind of the reality of it. Um, and obviously more resources are always better, but, um, you know, the, the kind of the fundamental idea of doing it differently, of doing it bottom up is to, to leverage power uh, more than we leverage, you know, financial power um, to organize our communities instead of, you know, pay for ads um, and that kind of thing. So that one I think is going to be pretty obvious. Um, anyone who's, and this is like true all the way to the national party. We don't have enough resources. Um, but I am actually one person that doesn't think that just more money is the solution. Um, I think more money is, you know, a nice thing, but it's not actually how we overcome this. Yeah, um, actually, that's something I throw in, uh, and especially the national party fairly often that um, uh, there's this kind of dream, right? That if we have more money and more resources, we'll be a stronger party, we'll be a major party, we'll be doing all this stuff. Uh, but I always advocate for, we should have the plan first before we ask for money. Why would anyone give us money if we don't, uh, you know, have like this very clear idea of what we're going to do with it? So in some sense, I think the lack of resources here ties in with a lot of the other points here and uh, you know maybe folks that were filling out the survey didn't quite uh, realize connections there but it <laughs> uh, me from my experience and and Chris and I talking a little bit before the live stream um, I think the lack of resources actually ties in with a lot of these other problems right that um, it's hard to fundraise to get more resources if you don't have the skills right if you've never done fundraising before and um, you're not really used to doing uh, communications and e-blasts and fundraising and uh, holding events and things like that. Um, you know, that could be a barrier that makes it harder for uh, locals to grow. Uh, sometimes you might need kind of some seed money, right? Some startup money um, before you can even do that, right? Uh, because you have to have a communication system. Well, how, how are you going to get that set up without money, right? You need some, some baseline, right? Um, and, um, you know, that's one reason that the Green Socialist Organizing Project advocates dues, that if you have a dues-paying membership, you can have some baseline funding in order to jumpstart things like that. Uh, but not every local and state party has been um, founded based on dues-paying membership yet, at least. Uh, hopefully, over time, more will convert to it. And, and there definitely have been states that have done it, I think, especially since COVID in the last couple of years that have switched to it <laughs> with, uh, with good results. So, you know, we want to encourage locals and states to keep doing that. Um, but then in additional lack of resources, I think, is also lack of training. Um, uh, and the training connects to this this uh, feeling of like, I'm not sure what the direction is or what my relationship is to the broader community, because we're not having trainings. We're not having educational one on ones and such, um, you know, as as often as we should within the party. And these live streams, I think, are, are kind of one step toward that. But having a much more formalized process, I think, uh, will help out a lot. Um, so, you know, that's something national could do for locals, but then locals, of course, have to implement their own 
uh, kind of onboarding procedure for new members so that they can uh, reach out, pull folks in and, um, you know, uh, get them organized into projects and stuff so, so that they don't wander away. <laughs> yeah. You know, just to, and to, to continue off that, you know, on the lack of resources and, you know, Garrett saying we should have a plan first, right? If you've watched these organizing 101s in the past, you've probably noticed almost every time I say words ain't shit, right? Um, the working class non-voters rightfully don't trust political parties and political organizers, right? Um, when I worked as a community organizer, right, we're working. Um, I was working in, you know, largely non-voting communities, and my bosses wanted this really. It was in 2012, and my bosses wanted this really big, like, anti-Romney vibe in our town with our organizing. And I kept telling them, you know, there is zero risk that these neighborhoods I'm going into that I'm working in are going to vote for Romney, right? That I live in my neighborhood wasn't ever going to vote for Romney. What they are going to do is overwhelmingly stay home, right? Because they've had a, they've had a democratic president at the time, a democratic, sorry, Mikhail, um, you know, they've had Democrats representing them up and down the board and their life, you know, the life conditions that they live in are not getting any better. Right. They've had Democrats come in and lie every two to four years and then abandon them as soon as they get their vote. Right. So if we want more resources in our community, whether that be people, money, access, whatever, we have to start showing up. Right. We have to actually be there in the community. We have to put skin in the game. We have to get on the front lines. We have to get on the streets. And when people see us doing that, when we build that trust, when we build that reliability, um, you know, when we build that credibility, that's when the resources will come. Right. Hey, we need money to help this candidate. Shit, that candidate has been in my neighborhood four times this week. Right. Or, the, or four times this month, right? I've, I see them. They they came to our community cleanup we had last week. When we had the when we had the protest outside the city outside city hall, they were there, right? And and one thing I will say from working in you know non-voter communities too, um, you almost got a little more cred if you didn't run to the front with your banner, right? Um, we we had an independent candidate for state uh for u.s house come to one of our community cleanups and myself and the you know the de facto local leaders of the neighborhood came up and said hey you know the democrat didn't come the city the democratic city council no one no other politician came to help us do you want to speak and he said i'm just here to help the community and he did his talking interpersonally one-on-one -on -one. and he got a lot of credibility for that, that he wasn't there to give a stump speech. And they very much respected that. And then he got dirty and he cleaned up their alleys with them. And guess what? He got 9%, you know, in, in that election as an independent. So um, getting access to those resources um, isn't something that we're entitled to, right? And the, you know, political operations of the Republicans and Democrats make it you know, hard for us because people rightfully don't trust political organizers. So I think that's a really important thing that we have to kind of remember and keep in mind, um, you know, and, and understand is a, is a prerequisite for having more resources, uh, no matter what those resources are. One, um, I do know, you know, the number two one burnout, I would I would say that's probably one of the big, if not the one of the largest part 
largest problems in the Green Party, right? We're a low resource party evidenced by number one. Um, and the people that we do have are passionate and care about the world and care about making the world a better place and care about their community and care about their neighbors and they throw everything into it. And the scope of what we have to do is just massive and total and we burn ourselves out, right? Um, I mean, in the, since I've been working with Garrett after the 20, in the last two years, after the 23 years, no, two years, after the 2020 election, Garrett's probably seen me go through two or three burnout cycles where all of a sudden I go quiet for a week or two because I'm, I just can't do it. Like I, I have the, all I have is the energy to get done when I have to get done and anything else doesn't get done. Right. Um, so burnout's a huge problem. Right. And, and you deal with burnout by getting more people, obviously with lack of resources, but also by making sure that you have layered coverage, right. That, that more than one people person can do a job. And that you establish a culture within your party where someone can say, come and say, hey, 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 I need help right now. Right. I have too many plates spinning. They're going to start falling. Can anyone take it? Um, you know, I, I, I've seen people do this to success and I've seen people to do this and then get thrown out of the party. Not not the Green Party happened with another third party I was involved in as a dual member. But, you know, somebody was getting divorced. Their life was falling apart. They stepped down as chair. And then they found that they, they were, everything blew up, right? All of a sudden thing like the, the local party status was revoked because we didn't have a chair. And, you know, it was just this whole mess when they did exactly what we want them to do, right? When you need help, you need to ask. Um, and then when somebody asks, you need to do everything you can to, you know, give them that support. So, you know, that's yeah, you know, uh, Sorry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, these, uh, these issues are really all intertwined. And so yeah. uh, we have to keep that all in mind because uh, like Chris was saying, uh, you know, some of the burnout comes from lack of resources that um, especially when we're running campaigns, right? The, uh, the amount of stuff that's required for us to run successful campaigns to get on the ballot and to, you know, really like get out there and door knock and, you know, do all the stuff that's necessary for, um, you know, a real campaign, like a real effort. Right. <laughs> Um, it requires a lot of us. And in some sense, it on purpose requires a lot of us, right? Because that's how the duopoly maintains power, that only the folks with a lot of money and a lot of connections are really, they're only supposed to be the ones that can actually run for office, right? It's not supposed to be that realistic for anyone else. Um, and those hurdles are not um, insurmountable. They, they can be overcome, but they, they can only be overcome by good organizing. Um, and so sometimes I think Greens run <laughs> headfirst into stuff before doing the organizing work. And when that happens, um, the end result is that a few people burn themselves out because they try to do everything on their own and, and they don't have the resources and support to do it. And this um, uh, it ends up happening um, partially from campaigns, like partially external forces, right? Like meeting ballot access laws, things like that. But also it happens a little bit internally because some of our party structure and part of our party bylaws and stuff like that require a lot of things of us. And some of that is inspired by election law too, but some of it is, I think, a little bit uh, too much for where the party is at right now. And so it ends up with people uh, feeling like they have to take on too many hats, too many roles in the party. 
Um, and I've, I felt that <laughs> I have been guilty of this. I'm not even pointing fingers at anybody. I have done this myself where you sign up for too much and it's because you're passionate, right? You want to change things. Um, but that's, that's not necessarily the, the best course to actually change things and to actually organize stuff. That's actually the, the course to burn yourself out and then nothing happens, right? Um, so it's really important in, uh, especially the early stages of building a local that you don't take on too much on yourself and that you don't feel like you have to do everything all at once by yourself right now or, you know, uh, you know, that's it. No, like you, one of the first things that you should be doing as an organizer is, is bringing in other people. And uh, one of the other, um, if you look at one of our past organizing 101s, we've had talked about how the, the, the best organizers are the ones that try to organize themselves out of the work. <laughs> like the, you're doing the best organizing work when you're teaching other people to be organizers, and then they can go out and keep, keep the cycle going, right? They can keep building in their communities and, and so on. Um, and that's really the sign of a healthy community, because then instead of you taking it all on your own, um, the work is being spread out and you have people that are getting trained and getting experience. And so if you need to take a step back because of something going on in your life or, or just, you know, feeling a lot of stress or pressure or whatever, there's people there that can help with that, that they've had the training and the experience to do that. Um, as opposed to everything falls apart, like Chris said, if, if you step back, uh, which unfortunately that pressure keeps people going even more, right? Like it's going to fall apart unless I do this. And so then I have to keep doing more of it <laughs> and it, it makes the burnout more severe makes the crash later on more severe <laughs> because you've gone for even longer now without training someone. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think the burnout is related to the lack of resources and the lack of training and skills and all too. Like this, this is all really the same problem in some sense. <laughs> yeah. It's, they're all, they're all connected. And that the other thing that burnout, you know, leads to in this kind of, it, it leads to a de facto centralization. Right. When it's the same few people doing the work, then those people have most of the power, most of the control. Right. It's and the what it it's often the best, you know, intentions of those overloaded organizers ends up creating an extremely anti-democratic system. Um, and it and it not it obviously it hurts them because they're burning out, but it also hurts the, you know, the health of the of the organization. Um, so we, I feel like we could probably spend two hours just on this graph. So I'm going to go to the next one and we can you know, start going, right? Because I think a key part of this is lack of direction and finding strategy, right? You're, why do you have a lack of resources? Well, what's your strategy on it, right? Why, why are people burning out? Like, what's your, what's your strategic plan for your, you know, your organization? Um, how are you limiting? How are you, you know, deciding what to do? Greens often feel the need to just do it. Whether they do it well or not, they just feel compelled that they someone has to act, right? And that doesn't generally lead to great organizing, right? Um, you know, all of the, uh, you don't have a, you don't feel like you have a connection to the broader community. Like, well, what's your plan to connect to the broader community, right? Um, and that that feel that we just have to act tends to leave greens running past initial strategic planning, right? It, it tends to lead us not to stop and take a breath and step back and think about what we're doing because we're just constantly doing. Um, we don't have time for that analysis. So, you know, you've got people at your meeting, right? We're talking about locals that we need need revitalized. So, what now, right? You don't you don't feel like you have a 
a, a clear sense of direction. Identify some issues in your community you want to see addressed, right? Things that directly benefit you and your community. People will be way more um, inclined to get involved if they have a material interest in the change that they want to see, right? Um, I, there's a Facebook page called Duh Universal Healthcare, uh, D-U-H Universal Healthcare. It is the most ideologically confused page I've ever seen in my life because it is explicitly, you know, created to support the idea of universal healthcare in the United States, but it, without any question, actively supports the Democratic Party that doesn't support this, right? They actively repress anyone from the independent left. Um, and it's just a, it, it's just a shit show of, you know, talking one way and acting the other. Um, so we, you know, and I, I think a big part of that is that I don't. I would, I would wager that the mods behind it have health care. I would I would I would wager that the mods behind it are comfortable Democrats with health care and thus don't have a material interest in being radical on the issue, right? Um, so that it's a, a consistent, you know, thing that I think that if if you want to get people engaged, you have to get them engaged in something that they have a stake in. Um, if someone doesn't have a stake in it, um, you know, if someone doesn't have a stake in what you're fighting for, then their line of when they walk away is way lower than the line of some, someone who needs this. Um, and that, that's something that we, we need to be cognizant of when we're organizing. Um, we talked about that a lot in our like uh, uh, qualifying the lead section of our last organizing 101, right? So we need to find some issues in our community that people are passionate about and that they're impacted by. And then when we do that, we also need to look who's working on that, right? Is the landscape on that issue crowded with people who are leading people into the Democratic Party or, you know, is the landscape empty? Is there an issue that's really important that no one's talking about, right? Because that is probably your best bet, right? Uh, Greens will also, also have this tendency to think that they should try to steal progressive Democrats as a tactic, but it's a decades long failed tactic, right? You can't steal a minority of a minority party to reach a majority, right? The largest voting block every election, um, you know, is non-voters, right? That, that's your largest party in, in, in pretty much every election. So, um, we need to be looking for areas where, you know, we can engage people, but there's also space for us to actually exist. Um, if you enter into an already crowded field of, a, of established movements and organizations around an issue, it's going to be really hard for you to, you know, get through what the green perspective is. Um, and that goes back to the messaging we talked about earlier. Greens are often really bad about being explicit about how our, how our, our vision is different, right? We say we want Medicare, for, we, we say we want universal health care, but what do we mean by that? And how is it different from the progressive Democrats vision? Well, it's different because we don't think that we should just have a national Medicare for all. We need a national health service. We need to socialize the entire industry, right? Uh, Medicare for all alone is going to be a feeding trough for pharma, 
for hospitals, for medical manufacturers, for things like that, right? Because they're still for profit. And that is a, that's an area of discussion that you're never going to hear out of progressive Democrats, right? That you're never going to hear out of a capital, a through and through capitalist party, which is what the Democratic Party is. So when we have these conversations about issues in our community, and obviously I chose a national one there and not necessarily a local one like you will be, but you need to be able to express why your perspective and your vision is different and why that difference is important right and why that import why that difference is something that people should fight for rather than settling for the middle of the road solution that you're going to get you know from some from a democratically aligned democratic party aligned group right when you find these issues right we can link them back to global global national or global issues right what what environmental racism looks different in pennsylvania you know where garrett is versus central Illinois, where I live, right? Um, Garrett lives somewhere where they're fracking the hell out of everything, right? Here in Illinois, the Sierra Club and the Illinois Democratic Party got together in a back room and legalized fracking, but we don't have any fracking happening in the state because it's not economical for us, right? They, they tried to let it happen. Like the Democrats tried to give fracking, you know, a foothold in Illinois, um, but the economics just aren't there, right? So it looks different. Um, you know, it, it looks different, different places. So when you're doing this, it's important to be able to tie up to these national issues, which tend to get people a little more excited than local issues and, and tend to have a little more background. Um, you know, power mapping, ask who, we'll talk more about power mapping later, right? But when you're asked, when you're coming up with an issue, you want to say, ask who, and you kind of want to ask who a bunch of times, right? Who does this impact? Who has the potential to change? Who has the, you know, the potential to get us near of that person, right? We, we, these are the kind of questions we want to ask when we're trying to figure out what to do. Um, think about reading groups or educational opportunities, right? Learn about actions and campaigns in both the U.S. and globally against capitalism to gain inspiration, right? We, we share, we talked on our, our last eco-socialism one, um, 101 about the Zapatistas, the ELZN, and their principles. Yeah. The Zapatista principles are like God-level principles and, and, and priorities, right? Like as a, as a leftist organizer, you read them and you're like, God damn, like they're extraordinarily hard to live by, right? but they're exactly what we need, right? And, and every green local should read and discuss those principles. Like, I honestly believe that, right? Um, just like, I think every green local should read, you know, um, Pablo, Fri Pablo Frieri's um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, because it's really important on our, to understanding of, you know, how our society, you know, marginalizes people, right? Um, and so these, these reading groups, you know, they help you kind of craft a, a common foundation, right? And a common political view um, that can help you get through, you know, some of the struggles that people have, the interpersonal conflicts, the lack of direction, the, the strategy, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, if I can add in there quick. Um, there's definitely a lot of, um, I'll call it theory, that would be really good to read. Um, it gives us this common, uh, you know, leftist green socialist language that we can communicate with each other a lot better and understand concepts a lot better because it facilitates <laughs> communication if we have words and language and ideas that we can uh, share with each other. 
Um, so I, I absolutely encourage folks to have reading groups around more um, theory sort of uh, concepts. However, the reading groups don't strictly have to be, you know, reading Karl Marx or whoever it is, right? A reading group could actually be as simple as just setting up a time where um, you and folks in your community get together and discuss the local newspaper or something like that. Um, discuss uh, articles that were posted online in, uh, you know, common things, that, you know, I, I, whatever leftist place, right? <laughs> you know, like a Jacobin or a left voice or something like that, right? Um, you know, just articles that have come out recently and discuss those. It doesn't have to be like a whole like crazy book of theory or whatever, right? Um, just it could be discussing current events, reading it together and discussing it and then discussing how it affects your community, especially if it's local newspaper. It's really easy to do, <laughs> but discuss how it affects your local community. And in particular, read those articles about what pe people are doing in other communities and see if what they're doing makes sense for your community. You know, there's all kinds of... Um, Cooperation Jackson and us, uh, uh, is it Spring Springdale? No, not Carbondale Spring. Carbondale Spring. That's it. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, there's there's all these groups like this that are working at local municipal levels to uh, to address problems in their in their communities, getting you know clean water or um, you know good jobs like worker co-ops and these things like that. Um, and it's really great to read about. Uh, essays about what they've been up to because it will help give you inspiration for what you could possibly do in your community. Um, so I, I just wanted to throw that in there that reading groups shouldn't necessarily be academic things, right? They they should be reading, um, you know, about what's going on in Cooperation Jackson and saying, oh, that's a really cool idea. What if we tried that here? That's really um, a, a great reason to get together for reading group. Yeah, one of the things that Howie has brought up numerous times over the, the last few years that I've worked with him um you know and, and it kind of gets to this idea right like if you say let's have a reading group that can feel really intimidating right you you can read people think that it takes this insane level of academia right um you'll notice that i'm in a different place in my house than usual right usually i'm sitting next to my bookshelf and like throughout these i'm like reaching over and i'm pulling off books and like i have a degree in political philosophy but you don't need any of that right to run a reading group and despite you know knowing that truth that you don't need that degree that you don't need those books like in a pile on you know in, on your desk like it can still be so intimidating that people just don't even try right and so one of the things how he's you know suggested multiple times and then i really love and i'm actually working on like a a guide and a resource on how to do it um is you take turns right you, you said that you have you have your you know weekly or monthly or however you know you're meeting monthly and this month it's Garrett's turn and Garrett's going to pick a work or a topic that he thinks is important um, give a short presentation on it and then talk about it right and have your discussion and that that thing can be an article that he read it could be you know an overview of the ELZN of the Zapatistas right it could be a discussion about Rojava um, and in my experience, most greens have issues that like they may not have the piece of paper from a from a university to say that they're experts, but they are experts in right that they have they have a level of, you know, novice expertise that goes beyond what most people know. And most greens have that on issues 
and are cap more than capable of coming you know of getting to that point on other issues so i really do love that idea when you're like when there's just not whether it's intimidation or resources or time or whatever the barrier is where you're just not starting your discussion group um i think that's a great workaround right you start a sign up and you get you know have the have people who are a little more confident take the first few months right and you work through it and so you know we work month one is garrett month two is me and you know we we start opening it up and that lets people you know teach you about their passion right when that when that one member of the party gets really worked up every time you talk about something and like it's like kind of annoying to you as an outsider like man why is why is bob really into this well bob's going to do a presentation on it and you're going to find out why Right. And then hopefully you're going to come away and go, well, damn, I thought that was kind of a tertiary kind of brushed it off issue. But it's as important as Bob has been making it seem now that I've been, you know, given a, a more than a gloss over education on it. Right. So it's a that's a really I really love that idea. And like I said, uh, we're kind of taking this data and we're, we're working on resources to address it. Um, and that's one of the resources I'm working on right now is kind of a guide and some outlines on how how to run that kind of decentralized, um, you know, reading group that doesn't take the time. Because, I mean, really, truthfully, to run a really good leftist political theory group takes a lot of work. It doesn't take just just take picking a book like that's the bare minimum. Right. You pick a book and you can do it. But if you want to excel if you want people to thrive in your reading group, you've got to put in time beforehand. You've got to write up summaries. You've got to have, you know, discussion questions ready. You've got to be, you know, well versed on it. Um, and, and this way, it, it very much, you know. Um, I, I can say as a um, a, a previous uh, educator, <laughs> uh, I used to teach uh, some college level courses. Um, a lot of folks really don't realize how much effort goes into creating a good lecture or a good class or a good, you know, learning experience. Um, and so that that's not meant to necessarily intimidate anyone to, um, to not do it. But um, really the point more is that a lot of effort goes into making good high quality stuff. And so it's important for us to put together some uh, good high quality materials to help you be able to put it together uh, really nicely. Yeah, as, as also as an educator, but I taught three to six year olds, um, you know, I would spend hours every week preparing for my science class where we would talk about, you know, where I would be, you know, give talk again, three to six year olds, right? So it shouldn't seem like it should take that much, but to do it to the level I wanted to do it to the, to the point that I could actually get through to a four year old about what, how about, you know, solids, liquids and gases, right? Um, takes work and so yeah we're we're trying to put some resources together to help you all but like I really love that idea of decentralized right pick something you're passionate about right most green parties will never run out of topics that their members can be passionate about <laughs> like, we're, we tend to be passionate to a fault um, and so that that really kind of plays into um, and, and it, when you do it also when you do it that way it helps us get to know each other right now I know why Bob's so into that topic, right? And, and that lets me know Bob a little better as a, as a comrade and as a fellow organizer, right? So, um, you know, these, there's so much good about education. <laughs> I, I think it's it's probably pretty common, um, and it's certainly been my experience, that um, 
folks will often start gravitating toward and learning a lot about something that's meaningful to their personal lives. It's, it's something radicalized them at some point in their history. Right. And, and that's part of what this is about. It's like, well, what was the thing that, that got the switch to flip in your mind and say, we need independent politics. Right. And, um, you know, for, for many environmentally minded people, it might be because they live next to some sort of coal plant or fracking or something. And they saw firsthand, we, you know, we see this in Pennsylvania. They saw firsthand that it's not just Republicans, it's Democrats, bipartisan pushing this. And they don't care that the fracking is next to your school and affecting your children's health. And so now that's radicalized. And so now, like Chris is saying, there's all kinds of people in the area that, okay, they don't have college degrees in fracking, but they know about fracking because they have studied this and they have talked to experts. They have talked to scientists and all, you know, they've gotten the people at our local universities to start looking into it, um, looking into the public health and stuff. And so, you know, there's a personal story behind a lot of this. And, you know, it, one of my stories is that I, over the last few years, I've become a lot more interested in, um, community control of policing and defunding policing and looking more toward, um, you know, having more socially just structures um, for, for helping people not just like criminalizing poverty and things. And that's partly driven because of my own personal experiences that, you know, I, my wife and I have had to fight in court against the police because she was arrested for protesting against fracking. They told her to leave a park, to leave the park. And when she asked why they arrested her, and then they tried to throw all these criminal charges on her saying like, oh, you, you were resisting arrest and, you know, uh, in uh, what, what would you call it? Um, disorderly conduct. Yeah. All, right. Just like threw the whole thing at her. And um, and, you know, you, you can hear these you can hear these stories. You can hear this stuff about the criminal justice system doesn't work, for example. Um, and you can sort of know that, but it's different when you've experienced it and you've seen it firsthand. Oh, I didn't realize it was this ridiculous. <laughs> you know? And so part of these greeting groups, I think, should be uh, us sharing these experiences. The, what was the thing that helped kind of radicalize us and help us realize that the current system doesn't work? And not only does it not work, but it doesn't have any interest in fixing itself. <laughs> we have to organize to fix it because it won't do it itself. It can't do it itself. That's part of the problem with capitalism. Yeah, and part of, you know, organizing a bottom-up party is accepting and elevating and, um, you know, respecting the, these, this experiential knowledge, right? Um, and in my, you know, I got that degree, and I got a degree in political philosophy, and almost immediately rejected political philosophy as, you know, the guy, as my guiding um, thing, because I, I, I left my, my, after my degree, and I started community organizing, right, and I realized very quickly that, you know, these folks who are living in, you know, the working class communities around me that are my neighbors, they understand capitalism at a visceral level that is, in my opinion, just as if not more valuable than the academic level, which I read about in my classes, right? Um, there, there's just that, and that academic level comes with an asterisk, right? It, 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 it comes out of a, a system that's entrenched in capitalism, a system that, you know, upholds capitalism in our education system in the US, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's got a, a a visor, you know, a, a filter on um, that often, you know, 
reduces its value and reduces its honesty. Um, I, I was at a, a climate reality event recently in my town and uh, of, of all the speakers had finished and I told one of my friends, man, two of those people came really close to saying the word capitalism. And one of them was a professor, a, 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 um, you know, was a professor of um, environmental science at our local university. And my friend said, oh, he knows the problem's capitalism. But when he's speaking as a professor, he doesn't say it, right? His job as a professor is, um, you know, limits what he's going to say and, and skews his perspective. And so we, we really have to, you know, elevate these, uh, the, the experiential knowledge that people have. Um, and one way we do that is through facilitative leadership, right? Um, it encourages the experimentation and it stops folks from burning out, right? Um, we, we have a policy in our education working group that is, if you have an idea and you want to see it done, right? Like if you want to, Andrew Hager has been in the comments, right? Talking about steam trains. I will again repeat, Andrew, if you want to do a, a workshop on trains, you know, we'll help you get other train people that are into, you know, public transit and public rail, and we can put this thing together. But our rule is you have to be able to step up and, you know, take a role. <laughs> you have to, you know, kind of t take the lead on it. Um, and through through facilitative leadership, you know, you, ex you encourage people to try that kind of experimentation, right? Oh, you've got an idea. Let's go with it. Let's give it a try. It may work. It may not. Um, and, and that's something with our strategies we have to really understand, right? We aren't, we're, we're trying to do a kind of organizing that doesn't really exist, right? We're trying to do a kind of organizing which is repressed uh, by, the, by the political establishment, right? We're trying to do, to create a world that has never existed before, right? It's a precarious, it's a very precarious um, thing that we're trying to organize for. And that means there's going to be setbacks, there's going to be sidesteps, there's going to be failures, right? As long with successes. So facilitative leadership, let's just kind of experiment out, right? And then one day, Allegheny County will try something and it'll work. And Garrett will be on, you know, on the National Committee and social media to, the, to, to Greens just broadcasting like, oh, we found something, right? Oh, this has some this has some legs, and then we can try it out on a larger scale. Um, yeah, speaking of, we have we have this kind of rule of thumb in Allegheny County that um, you know at our meetings, if any member wants to bring forward an idea for some sort of project or action or campaign or whatever it is, uh, they can bring forward that idea, and we'll all be supportive of it. We just kind of put this this rule of thumb on it that says if you can get five other members or four other members, right, five total. If you can get five people to sign on to that project, then we'll support it, right? We, you know, we'll toss you some money out of our bank account. Um, you know, we'll set up a plan and, you know, we'll do the media advertising, whatever it is. Um, we just want a handful of people to support it. Um, and if you have that, let's go forward and do it, right? Um, because, and part of the reason we do that is, you know, we don't expect you to have 50 people or something because <laughs> it would be, it'd be hard to um, get that. Uh, amount of people, especially if you want to if you want to take some sort of like quick action, and sometimes that's what happens, right? Like, we've had, uh, for example, like Joe Biden and stuff come to Pittsburgh, and and it's been thrown out. Like, well, how about we go protest that he's there? And so, um, you know, that's kind of a, a quick thing that needs to happen, right? And so we always say, like, well, if you can get five people together, do that. Um, and it's partly because you want you want enough people around that they can support each other, especially if it's some kind of action or whatever, right? Like you want to make sure that it's not just one person by themselves. 
um, for a number of reasons, right? You don't want one person to burn themselves out. You don't want one person to feel neglected or left out by the group because they're off doing things by themselves. If they do an action, they go out with signs or something like that. You want to have a bunch of people around so that, like, for example, uh, the police can't come by and just say, you're one person being rowdy on a street corner. We're just going to take you. Uh, instead, you know, if you have five people with you, you know, um, you have witnesses, right? You, you can have a liaison that talks to them and says, like, look, we're, we're just here for free speech and stuff. And, and then it usually goes fine. Um, so, you know, that, that's been our rule of thumb. And I think it's worked pretty well where we've had, you know, some interesting actions that have come out of that, um, where uh, Greens have gone to rallies. And I, I think one of the most recent ones actually was uh, Bernie Sanders came to Pittsburgh and it was thrown out there like, well, why don't we just go to the Bernie Sanders rally and just start handing out Green Party flyers? <laughs> and so that was what happened. Like five of them went out there with a banner and just started hand, handing out Green Party stuff to them. And, um, you know, of course, there were a lot of Democrats in the crowd that were that were put off by that. But there were other people who were there because Bernie represented this kind of independent edge. Right. And so an independent Green Party saying, you know, like, hey, we're going to take what Bernie's saying to the next level right not just medicare for all national health service and all this stuff that really appealed to them so um you know that that's been our kind of rule of thumb that you know if you can grab a few people then it's probably something worth trying and worth doing right um so that's a good gauge hopefully that helps <laughs> yeah and the other thing it helps with is another one of the topics you know that we'll talk about in coming up on slides and that is gatekeeping right if if everything has to go through one or a few de facto leaders with a stamp of approval, it can be really hard to get things done, right? But with facilitated, facilitative leadership removes that, right? And oh, yeah. To, to be clear, when I say uh, uh, five members, when I mean like any five members. I'm not talking yeah. about like the co-chair has to agree or whatever. Like just if yeah. any five members of the local party agree, then, you know, we're supporting you doing that. Yeah. Right. So how do we get a strategy, right? And that from there building engagement right how do we get that spark back right start with small goals and win snowball them more folks will join as they see more progress don't forget to the importance of fun social events to recharge activist spirit um, education and fun events not dry boring meetings uh, be visible in your community standing up for your values be visible in your community having fun go wave some signs and agitate um, I hadn't actually read this until last night, um, but do go read your politics are boring as fuck um, because they are, and it's important, right? We talked about earlier when we were, um, we talked about earlier that people are more likely to get involved with something if they have a material interest in it, if it directly impacts them, right? Um, and this, this short, it's a short essay, um, you know, gets right at that, you know, and, and I think it does has a great critique of, you know, traditional leftist education, right? We're in here talking a lot about how you need to do education, but we shouldn't be trying to replicate how, you know, the left has been doing it for decades because it's boring as fuck, right? It's reading people, it's reading, it's reading theories from authors who've been dead for a century, right? It's, it often lacks any kind of, um, you know, draw, uh, Kind of application to modern standards it often lacks any kind of um you know orientation towards action items at the end um and it really plays into this kind of elitist like who's read more books attitude that happens on the left right 
Um, and that's yeah, not an exciting thing to get engaged in. It's boring as fuck. And that's not me. You know, I just bought my wife um, Lenin's The Imperialism, The Highest Form of Capitalism, right? There's value to reading these things, but it has to be done in a very specific way. It has to be done with a purpose. Um, and, and it has to be done for, for a reason other than to check it off the list of, of quintessential readings that you've done. Um, so I think that's a really important, you know, article for people to read, essay for people to read and kind of think about, like, when you come to our, um, when you come to our meeting, like, are people bored? And if they're bored, how can we change that, right? And there is a level of business meetings that will always have a little bit of boredom, right? But that's where the other points on this come, right? You've got to have your business meeting. It keeps your, you know, party functioning. But if it's the only thing that you do, the only thing that people have access to to get involved with you is a boring thing. And that's immediately cutting off your knees and limiting the number of people who can get involved. Have educational events, right? Like we said, not the ones that the, the traditional left ones, but have fun educational events. Have educational events that are applicable to people's lives. Have educational events that talk about what can we actually do about these problems, not just analysis, right? But also have fun events, right? Um, in my opinion, some of the best ideas I've experienced in organizing have happened after the meeting, have happened at the bar at two in the morning, right? I, I, I tell a story often about at the Green Party's presidential convention in 2016, um, we just nominated Jill and all of the youth caucus, all of the young eco-socialists at that time, we were the young Greens, but we all went to a, bar, a local bar and I was sitting and I was talking to a close friend of mine and I was telling him about um, how I learned that sidewalks make great bar graphs. They make great bar graphs. The lines are already there, like boom, right? But we were on, I was a student at my, at my university and we made, we made graphs on our quad about student debt, right? how much the average student borrowed versus how much the average student paid to show we're paying double by the end of it, if, if not more, right? Um, we showed our, our campus's tuition, which had increased 252% over 10 years, right? The next day, the university put out a press release responding to our, our graphs. And they tried to spin it and they said, it's actually only raised 150%. So then the next day we put out a press release and said, we like the nice little fun thing they did there where they took all of the schools in our system and combined them to get the 150%. Well, <laughs> try to erase the fact that our school has always been the cheapest and is catching up and has actually had a great, much greater increase than the other schools in our system, right? They, they responded immediately. And so we're talking about this in the bar and my friend Michael goes, hold on, I've got to go get Michael and Ursula, a different Michael and Ursula. And he runs off and they run off and they come back and they go, they're too drunk for this conversation, but we need to have it tomorrow. <laughs> right. Um, and so the, that conversation never would have happened in a business meeting because it wasn't relevant to our business meeting. Right. It was just a story that I was telling about an experience that I had, but it, it was a an idea and so these fun things they're they're how we get to know each other they're how we say the idea that we have that doesn't have a place yet in the business meeting that's just a kernel but we need some people to chew on it with us right um i i have a very simple 
I, I, I always tell people when we're talking about local party organizing, I, I'm a big advocate of a very simple model starting off of three meetings a month, a business meeting, right? Which we have to have to keep running a social event and an educational event. And by doing all three, you give people three different ways to engage in three totally different ways, right? The people that want to be involved in admin stuff that want to be behind the scenes, get to go to the business meeting that want to talk, you know, inside baseball and party strategy, they get to go to the business meeting. The people that are just kind of interested and want to learn more about you can come out, come out and have a drink with you. Right. Um, you know, one thing I will say is most greens do their green socials at bars. Um, at least try to cycle in some non-bars, right? Um, <laughs> we've got a major alcohol problem in this country, and a lot of young people um, aren't trying, you know, I, I, we recently had an activist meetup. It was at a bar, um, and when it was raised that there were people who weren't going because it was at a bar, the next one was scheduled at a tea house, right? Um, so try to mix it up. Try to give people some, some and, and don't just land yourself in a bar because man, alcohol plus politics can be really ugly sometimes, um, right? But then, but that's a way that you and you can meet people and kind of slowly edge them in to the, have those conversations that take more than one, right? Uh, six months after six months showing up to these green drinks, all of a sudden someone shows up in your meeting because you want them over, right? Um, and then have those educational events, right? Um, they allow you to work with other organizations, right, and build relationships and partnerships. They allow you to reach out to experts and, you know, knowledgeable people in your community and build those relationships. And they create events for the general public to come and hear your perspective. And then you've got your table in the back and you get their email address and then you invite them to the social and then you invite them to the next rally you're doing, right? But by doing a three-prong, you know, monthly calendar of a business meeting, which takes quite a, you know, can take some work, right? A social event, which takes almost no work. And then an educational event, um, which can take some work as well. But once you get in the groove of doing educational events, you'd be surprised how quick it can go, right? In terms of planning. Um, it gives you all these opportunities to meet new people. It gives your current members all these opportunities to get involved and actually start working and doing things. And it, that in itself can help. You know, it seems like we're like increasing the scope, which would increase burnout. But because we're diversifying the scope, hopefully we're, we're reducing burnout, right? Hopefully we're bringing more people into the fold that are actually taking an active step. And the people that have been carrying all the weight can kind of shift some off to other people. I saw Garrett want to jump in. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, let me see. What was I going to add in there? It was about yeah, the socials. I, about what? It was about the socials. Yes, um, definitely the socials. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this is another one of the sort of casualties of, of COVID that we'll have to um, see if we can kind of reintegrate. But at least before COVID, um, which, man, feels like forever ago. <laughs> But before COVID, we would usually have these uh, educational events, and a lot of times it would be at like a coffee shop or something where anyone could attend, um, and uh, you could support the local coffee union, right? <laughs> so there's all those perks. But like we had, for example, holiday parties, and I remember uh, a holiday party. It must have been 2019. It, it was like right before the pandemic started. Uh, we had a holiday party where uh, we got together, and it was it was just a party. It was just like come get together and chat with greens. And uh, we just had a couple of people there that that said, um, well, you know, I'm I'm 
planning on running for office next year. And so, um, you know, uh, as we're doing our holiday greetings, they got up and said, you know, I'm thinking of running for office, you know, next year. And, you know, and everyone cheered and it, it spawned like some just kind of like very informal, uh, you know, over cookies and <laughs> hot cocoa and stuff. Right. Talks about like, oh, why do you want to run for office? Well, you know, what's you know, tell me more about your district and all. And that allowed us to kind of have this recruiting um, sort of drive, like uh, not on purpose, but it ended up being that because folks who were new to the Green Party. We had people who, like, it was literally their first time ever going to the Green Party meeting, right? They would have never went to a business meeting, but they saw holiday party, come meet the Green Party. <laughs> and they said, I'll do that. That sounds good. I'll go have some cookies. And they went there and they met some of our candidates. And, and um, I forget who it was, but the, um, I know we had one person who I, who was like a musician and said like, hey, I'll volunteer to like do some music at future campaign events and all. And, you know, we started to network and, and find people and just those casual conversations like you, you never knew like, oh, this person is actually a musician. I didn't know that they played an instrument. You know, it's, you, know um, you find out all these interesting things about each other um, and you, you build uh, camaraderie, right? You build solidarity with each other. Um, which is very important for building a, you know, a movement, uh, trying to do the important work <laughs> that needs to be done. Um, and also, you know, you're, you're learning about each other's skills and how, um, having these conversations about how we can put these skills to work and building the party and building campaigns and things. So, you know, I highly encourage uh, having some type of social um, so that you get all these impacts, right? Not everything has to be formal and stuffy and all, just like that essay is talking about. Um, and in fact, uh, the formal stuffiness should be kept to a minimum, really, um, because really community is, is based on, you know, um, people enjoying each other's company, right? Having fun and learning with each other and all this stuff. And, and when when it becomes a chore, when people are like, you know, it's like a second job or third job or whatever, right? Like, oh, I got to go to the Green Party meeting. Who's going to actually want to do that? Nobody, right? <laughs> so it should, everything should be fun and um you know, I think good work kind of flows out of that as we have good discussions with each other. Another decentralized education model that I just remembered um, <coughs> that can really help with this building engagement thing is something that the DuPage County Green Party, which is like the Western Collar counties or outside of Chicago and Illinois did. But they had something every month called Hot Topics. And they picked a topic and it wasn't a present and listen thing. It was a let's have a discussion around this topic with everyone who shows up, um, you know, and it, it, in that case, all you really have to do is pick a topic and, you know, probably as a green host, be prepared to debunk and counter some things that might come out, you know, come up. But, um, you know, that's another easy, low key way to do an, you know, to do a, a mix of an educational and a social event, um, you know, with something like that. So I'm actually going to go back. We've talked, you know, a lot, we, we've talked about a lot of the problems that we're facing in the Green Party with locals, you know, that people often run into when they, when they encounter their local for the first time, and a lot of ways that we can kind of shift that, right? But I just wanted to go back and review, right? Lack of engaged members or lack of ways to engage. Right. And, and when we were just talking about, you know, social events and educational events, they solve both those problems. Right. If you have your social events, and your education events, in addition to your your uh, 
business meeting, you provide multiple opportunities for potential supporters and members to come in contact with you. And you also provide different ways for your current members to actually do something, right? A lack of direction. Um, you know, we've talked quite a bit about strategy and things like that. Um, we're working on, I'm, I'm working on something called mini strategy sessions, um, as a, you know, with a guide and, and some, some, you know, examples and models to follow. But the idea there being that, you know, doing real strategic planning is hard for green parties, right? Especially states and locals, because we're all volunteers, right? We, we have limited time as it is. Um, to do serious, like, organizational strategic planning, like, you need to, like, go stay with each other long, to, you know, for like a week, you know, and really dive in. And that's just not possible for most of us. Um, so we're working on some resources to help um, kind of break that into digestible parts that you might be able to do at, at you know, at a, a, um, one of your business meetings or, um, you know, engage with as part of your educational programming. Um, you know, the disconnect from the broader community, we talked about ways to strategize around that. We talked about, you know, um, things like how we, how we meet and how we engage to, to do better. And then, you know, internal conflict and gatekeeping, um, you know, that it's a big, I thought we had an internal conflict. I guess we didn't. Huh. Um, There's some slides on it. I, I think they're toward the end. I moved them a little bit. <laughs> okay. Oh, yep. Um, so I, I guess let's hit that first real quick because we are coming up on our two hours. Um, so internal conflict in conflict resolution. The lack of adequate conf conflict resolution and restorative justice processes isn't unique to the Green Party or the left, right? Um, especially re restorative justice. Um, th this is a social, you know, a society-wide problem that we don't have restorative justice as a, you know, processes in place. Um, so, you know, things we're talking about are things like mediation and nonviolent communication. Um, the Green Party likes consensus uh, decision-making, and they can help diffuse tension by including more voices, uh, but they can also be abused without effective facilitation and good faith engagement. Um, there's often unwritten rules that are only known by some and are selectively enforced. Um, it's really essential to have clear rules and processes. And um, it, this is something that, you know, I, I want to emphasize that you know, you can set up your own conflict resolution stuff. You can set up your own processes, but this is something where the broader party really needs to step up. Um, it's hard to solve your own problems if you're all involved, right? How do you have in, how do you, and the same goes for like facilitators, right? How do you have um, objective voices to help you work through this stuff? Uh, because one of the worst things you can do is go into conflict resolution with biased people in control or with biased processes, right? When that happens, you don't, you're not actually resolving the conflict. You're, you're deepening it and generally pushing someone out, um, you know, as opposed to, to solving the conflict. Um, you know, and I will say if, if it was about 10% of people, I think, identified internal conflict as one of the main problems in their party. Um, from my experience in the Green Party, that number is way higher. Um, you know, where we, 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 in my experience in the Green Party, interpersonal conflict is one of the biggest problems we have in organizing. So, 
Um, I think it was a little bit underreported. And I think one of the big reasons it's a, one of the bigger problems that we have is because when it happens, there's often no clear path to resolution, right? Um, when someone does, you know, run afoul of green values, like what does restorative justice look like? What are restorative processes look like? Um, most states don't have anything like that. Um, most states don't have anything in terms of discipline, right, in their bylaws. In, in Illinois, where I'm from, um, we can remove a member, but there's no restorative process. Um, you know, it would have to be made up on the fly, which is not a healthy way to deal with that situation. Um, you know, this is the, the National Party has a dispute resolution committee, but I don't think we should even pretend that exists. Um, it's not binding. People can just refuse to participate. The people in charge of it actually don't have any training or skills for the most part in conflict mediation. Um, and it's largely failed um, in its role. So I think we, we need to be looking at building something new because um, what we have is working. But, um, you know, conflict can be kind of the greatest source of growth, right, and, and, and innovation but it's got to be managed properly. It's got to be moved through processes that are clear. Um, you know, it's got to be handled well. Otherwise, it can be one of the most destructive things that we can face. This might actually be um, a place where maybe some better terminology might even help. Um, I, ha I have one book that I always think of the title because the title really summarizes a really good key point. And it's, it's um, conflict is not abuse. <laughs> and I think that's kind of what, what's applying to uh, what Chris is saying here, that conflict on its own is not necessarily a bad thing. And actually, um, you know, conflict in the sense of a civil disagreement, right, is very important for party growth because that's where we challenge each other to do better. And that's where we challenge our ideas. And we say, is, has this idea been working for us? And if not, how can we change it? How can we make it better? How can we do what we need to to grow the party? So we're not necessarily trying to stifle conflict here. Uh, you know, we're not stifling free speech or anything like that. What we're talking about is dealing with when the conflicts get so great that it becomes abusive, that there, there becomes harm being done to somebody, where we really need to step in and prevent that. Because we, we need to have safe spaces for our members, right, where, where folks can feel comfortable actually expressing their opinions and expressing their thoughts and their personal experiences and stuff like this. And if they don't feel safe to do that, if they feel like someone's going to jump down their throat and attack them and then there's no consequences, then they're not going to open up. And, and if they don't open up, they never really feel part of the party and they eventually drift away. So, you know, this is a really important thing for, um, for growing and maintaining our, our local parties. Um, and I want to throw in there that point about unwritten rules, especially that, uh, it's important to write down processes up front um, so that folks know how to, to follow it and to implement it, but also so that it can be more fair. You can have a process that we apply fairly to everybody. Um, and then you, you kind of have a documentation, a record that it's, um, you know, the same sort of process was applied to everybody. You weren't treating someone preferentially or whatever. And that's what happens when you don't have rules written down you don't have rules written down or the rules are really unclear, um, then everyone has to kind of interpret it or, or kind of make something up on the spot. And everyone's going to have a different idea. And then you start to create more conflict, actually, because then everyone has a different interpretation of what should be done or not be done. And then you start getting accusations thrown around like, oh, you're being biased or you're, you're whatever, you know. 
um, you're not following the rules, you're not following the bylaws and all. And, and it starts to become a, um, you know, its own source of conflict, ironically. Um, so it's, it's good to have a very clear process up front before there's any sort of um, internal conflict um, that yeah. everyone's aware of and that everyone knows how to participate in. Go ahead. Sorry, Chris. Oh, yeah. And, you know, while this is vital for, you know, our internal work, right, if we're having these problems as greens, right, as all self-identifying greens, um, people who are generally coming from at least somewhat of the same space politically, right, um, if we're having that problem within our narrow you know, uh, ideology, you know, ideological outlook. What's that going to look, what's that mean for us when we're talking about building a mass party, when we're talking, engaging the mass working class, the mass of non-voters, right? And the, the massive, the, the massive range of ideas and perspectives and, you know, positive or negative that come with that, right? Um, if we can't deal with it, if we can't find out a way to effectively deal with this kind of conflict and how to how to successfully navigate and turn conflict into growth within our small, narrow demographics, how can we ever expect to do it on the larger scale, right? Um, so while this, you know, seems like it, it's kind of a case-by-case, -case, like, interpersonal thing, which often is how it manifests, right, it, it has this kind of existential importance to us um if we can't figure out how to navigate this uh, we will never grow um when i first got involved in the young eco-socialist which is the youth caucus um, you can check them out at yesgp.org if you're under 35 join them they're a great space um when i first got involved with them i ran i started running an education program um, which anyone who knows me is what i do when i burn out uh, I, I switched to education but uh so I, I started running an education program and one of the things that we wanted to do that we didn't succeed on because we didn't really get buy-in um, from our leadership and our membership at the time was we wanted a facilitator training program right which kind of gets into a couple a couple slides from now but our goal was to train hundreds of young socialist facilitators to help navigate these problems of growth right to help navigate conflict um, and I, it, it's funny because, you know, looking back a few years later, some of the people who are most opposed to us doing such a system because they didn't quite get it and they didn't get why we wanted to do it, came back around and were like, oh, things would be so much different if we had done that. <laughs> right? So it, it can be really important, but we'll get to facilitation in a minute. Um, consensus is one way that the Green Party, you know, seeks to deal with this stuff um consensus oriented oriented decision processes are the most common are most common in green spaces um you know and to explain a consensus process and how it how it's different from like robert's rules which is majority rule right um in the consensus process we'll be having a discussion about something a proposal will be put on the table i say we do x are there any concerns and people will raise concerns they have with X and we'll actually talk it out, right? We'll actually work through it um, and try as best we can to alleviate those concerns, right? Um, 
you know, oh, I really like the idea of X, but I'm concerned with Y. Now we know the thing we need to address, right? We need to know, we know how we need to get through it. Um, and then point number two here, it says you must have a clear decision rule, right? The danger of consensus is that it just lags out in discussion and never comes to a vote because people want, excuse me, because people want that unanimous consensus. And it's not always possible. I Many times in my time in the Green Party, people have gotten mad at me because I forced a vote, because I refused to give drop a blocking concern, and I lost. And I knew I was going to lose, but I wanted it on the record that this wasn't unanimous, that there was opposition here. Um, and I can be, you know, and the, I, I'm thinking of one, I was voted down like 28 to 4. And I thought it was going to be... 31 to 1, right? So I found out there are four people on my side who are sitting quietly in the room, um, but we still got our asses kicked, right? We still lost, but it was important to me that we had that vote, that we made that clear decision um, and that it was recorded in the minutes so that when we come back to it again, which we have, right, and uh, find out that it was foolish and that I was right, um, <laughs> <laughs> that I, I have something to dance on them with. No, but we have, you know, we have a record of it. Um, but it's important to understand, right, that pro consensus isn't that vote. Consensus is the process of getting to that point um, where you take a vote or where you address the concerns, right? Because when you have majority rule, 51% rule beats 49%, but 49% of the people didn't get their way at all, right? And that doesn't, that's not a democratic way to make decisions. So it's, it's important to kind of hear those concerns out and not just say, well, we've got control, so we're just going to move through. Um, that, that we want to avoid that. Um, consensus must be participatory. It's inclusive, open-minded, empathetic, collaborative, um, shared ownership of the process. Often consensus will, um, consensus note-taking will, in, or stack-taking will engage in what's called a progressive stack, which means that, uh, you know, it will elevate the voices of people who haven't spoken much, right? It'll elevate the voices of people from, um, you know, directly impacted communities. Um, you know, I, one thing that comes to mind for me on that is, is dues, right? When dues debates come up, I often hear about the people who can't afford the dues. And, you know, the, the, that point is raised almost always, not by the people who can't afford the dues, but by people who want to be seen defending them, right? The people who, who are having a hard time affording the dues make it work, right? I, I know green locals who have homeless members who make, who make the $12 a year minimum dues that they require. You know, they make it happen because they have a vested interest. They have a material interest in the party succeeding. Um, but middle-class individuals who are com morally comfortable and can afford it, um, you know, will try will try to shout over those people um, on their behalf. And so it's got to be participatory, and we've got to make sure that we're, you know, being inclusive and, and, and elevating the voices that need to be elevated and, um, and giving, I, people, giving people space to speak. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I, I wanted to kind of emphasize the, the last little part of that uh, bullet point, actually that it's shared ownership of not only the process of making the decision, but shared ownership of the result itself, shared ownership of the implementation. Because it it's meaningless to make a decision to, let's say, endorse something 
and then nobody does anything about it. <laughs> I often in meetings go, who's going to do it? And often I don't say it as nicely as I just said there. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very important that part of the decision-making process here is not just making the decision, um, but making the decision of who's going to uh, be the, the shepherd, so to speak, right? Who's, who's going to take ownership of this? Who's going to take a point on, um, you know, organizing and putting the plan into effect and then reporting back to the group uh, what the results were. Um, because I, you can make a decision. Like I said, you can endorse an event or a march or something like that. But then if you do that and then no one does anything, no one shows up that day, no one shows up with banners, no one puts out a press release or whatever, then you might as well have not made that decision at all. It was completely meaningless. Part of this process has to be deciding who's going to do the work. And usually... I think it's a good rule of thumb of whoever proposes it should be willing to at least be part of the implementation, right? <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's uh, in my experience, kind of a warning sign if someone comes in and says, I think you should do something else um, because uh, that ends up being uh, somebody trying to put work on other people and then it burns people out and then maybe it wasn't a good idea and that was why they didn't want to do it themselves, right? They like, well, you take the risk on that, you know, so um you know make sure this is built into your process and as an organization when you get to that point right when someone says we should do this your organization has to not you know has to it's really like garrett said it's super important to say okay well you're part of this right you have to take a, a leading role um one of my my friends and another former green party co-chair dr margaret flowers um had a rule that I don't want to hear your idea unless you're willing to put your, you know, unless you're willing to do it. Right. And it seems really, really harsh, but that the people who've been to these kind of meetings know how prolific this problem is of you, we should, but it really means you should. Right. So while there is, you know, kind of a responsibility on the, the people bringing the ideas to make sure that they're involved in implementation, there's also a responsibility on the party, which has the infrastructure, which has the experience, which has the membership, which has the skills um, to support that person in the implementation, right? So when you say, I want to do X, but I don't know how, say, cool, we're going to teach you how, right? We're going to show you how, we're going to walk you through the steps, and we're going to hopefully get you to the point the next time you have this idea, you don't say, I don't know how. You say, I want to do Y, and I'm going to do this, this, and this, right? Um, because yeah, implementation, lack of Im implementation is, you know, a huge, huge problem. Um, and I, I, in my mind, I, we had a, a member in Illinois had an idea to do fundraising based on bill numbers. Um, so if you want, you know, it was like ballot access, an equal ballot access bill was like 2323. So it was like, if you want, um, you know, if you want equal ballot access for independents and third parties, donate 2323 to the Illinois Green Party and help us in our fight. Um, and she had like half a dozen bills. I heard that idea and I went, send me the info. And that night she had graphics, right? Because I, I, I do a lot of graphic design, but I don't do a lot of graphic design for the Illinois Green Party because I'm just stretched thin, right? Um, but I heard an idea that I liked. And I jumped on helping on the implementation part. I hear other ideas that I like, and they say, Chris, will you make a graphic? And I say, no, I don't have time, right? Um, or, I'll, or I'll reluctantly get to it eventually. But 
Um, that implementation is key because, like Garrett said, if you're not doing it, if you're not implementing, if you're not, there's no action at the end of the vote. Um, what was the vote for? What was the the you know? What, what was the purpose? Um, and the to you know one of the main problems with consensus can be that it can be inefficient, right? It can wait, seem like wasting time. It can frustrate and discourage members. So you have to have a clear agenda and meeting structure. Um, you have to have you know people who are facilitating in charge. Um, you know you've got to have you know I'm on different sides of the fence at different times on time limits. Um, at times I think they can be very valuable, but at other times I think they can be stifling. Um, but this all comes down to kind of what I was talking, I mentioned earlier, right? If we try to pile everything into a once a month business meeting, it's not gonna be efficient, right? We're not gonna be able to have those deep conversations because we're gonna have 10 deep conversations we need to have. So we've gotta be efficient about this, not only in our meetings, but in our work outside our meetings and having process, clear processes for how do we have these discussions and votes so that maybe we're even coming into the meeting only to vote, right? Um, we've had, in Illinois, we were, we were doing platform amendments a few years ago and we cut it off because people who didn't participate at all in our months long process of writing platform amendments, all of a sudden wanted to change them the day of the vote. And we were, you know, we, were, we literally, at one point we voted to extend our discussion for 30 minutes and we only got through one amendment and then we canceled it. We said, okay, we're not voting on any more because we're we're not doing this. We're not spending, you know, three days going through things with people who refused to participate in the process, who wanted to come in last minute and derail things, right? So we've got to make sure we have these clear processes and that we're yeah. I, I think uh, especially relating to time limits and stuff, um, you know, de definitely judiciously decide when uh, to use them or not. But uh, one aspect that I, I keep in mind is that as, as a working class party that sees building a working class mass movement, right? Uh, we should be respectful of the fact that working class people are busy. <laughs> lots, lots of work hours, lots of hours of raising the family, right? Raising the kids, uh, maybe taking care of elderly parents. Like, you know, we don't have all the money. We can't, we can't hire, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I was thinking of who's Batman's uh, uh, the, but the butler, right? Like, <laughs> like we, we can't have like these teams of people to help us, right? Like we don't have the money resources for it. And, you know, aside from exploitive things and all, but um, the point is, uh, Alfred, sorry. What, Alfred. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like 30 was, seconds late on that. I don't have an Alfred. Like how am I supposed to be Batman if I don't have Alfred? Right. But <laughs> in any case, um, you know, working class people are very, very busy. And so time is actually a very precious commodity in some sense, or, or uh, maybe I shouldn't use commodity, but it's it's a very precious thing for working class people. So for one thing, just getting working class people to your meeting is a big deal, right? Because they, they have traded some of their very limited free time to be part of the Green Party. And we should really respect that. We should really emphasize that you know <laughs> they're, they're really taking a lot out of their personal lives to be here and to support this movement and one way that we can respect that is respect it with time if we tell them that there's going to be a two-hour meeting then we stick to two hours because if it draws out to three or four hours or whatever 
not only is it frustrating, but it's not respecting their time. And if they have to leave because they they have to get up early for work in the morning or something like that, then they're not able to participate anymore. And so they feel left out. And so why would they continue giving up their free time to an organization that doesn't care about allowing them to participate? You know, So um, it's very important, I think, for us to be efficient, not because we're trying to be, you know, uh, restrictive or crazy about it, but actually it's because we want to be respectful of everyone's time and everyone's ability to participate and the process. And uh, that's part of what Chris is catching on here, right? That um, folks that didn't respect the process, that they didn't, weren't involved for months, who wanted to show up and hold up the show the last minute, that's not respectful of everyone else in the party. Why should they get special treatment? They shouldn't. Yeah, I will... I will out myself right here and cast some shade at the National Green Party. I've almost completely removed myself from involvement in the National Party. Like I'm on the National Committee, um, but I've stepped down from committee chairship. I've removed myself from numerous committees. And a big, big, big part of it was that I didn't feel like my time was respected in my work with the National Party. Um, you know, I'd get on a call and there'd be 30 minutes of, I, I was once on a call that 30 minutes were taken to, to argue about what small and large packages were when shipping through USPS. I sat there through it, like through the whole thing. I just sat there while two people fought for 30 minutes over something that didn't matter to anything, anyone on the call, right? Other, you know, and it could, it, and it was something that had a clear delineated answer by USPS. Right. It could have been looked up after the call and just written in the notes. Right. And that's just one of many examples. Right. But I, I've largely removed myself from GPUS organizing because I didn't find it to be effective, efficient or respectful of my time. Um, and a big part of that comes from being a GPUS co-chair where I had like five calls I had to be on every single week and burnt out. But, you know, there's all that. So consensus can be used to, you know, kind of navigate these conflicts. A key, key, and it says it right there, right? We need ensure skillful facilitation in a safe environment. Facilitation of these meetings is super important if we're going to actually navigate this stuff. Um, effective facilitation can be a powerful tool for navigating tough decisions and conflict. Um, effective facilitation keeps meetings timely, decisions focused, and outcomes clear and action-oriented. It takes experience, training, and a feel for group discussions for the facilitator to become effective. And knowing how to lead this process, right? Remember, uh, consensus decision-making is a process, not, a, not an actual decision. Um, and when to intervene and redirect and things like that. Um, one problem green often Greens often run into is that we don't have the, the resources or even access. I, I don't know who I would even reach out to in my community. That's not true. I know a couple people, but there is no, you know, professional facilitators, right? There's no one that's doing this job that would come into our meeting and help us run our meeting, right? So we often have to do it ourselves. Um, you know, our facilitators are active participants in the discussion, and this can create problems. Um, but it can be navigated by a skilled and transparent facilitator. I'll also note that there have been times when I have been the facilitator and we have come to a specific topic on our agenda. And I have, you know, before we started, raised my hand and said, I would like someone else to take over facilitating because I'm going to be actively involved in this discussion. And someone would. And then after that was, and you know, and I would, I, if it was like, 
and, and I would do that when it was going to be contentious, right? When I was going to be taking an active role in a contentious discussion. Um, if it was just like a discussion that wasn't really contentious, I probably wouldn't recuse myself, right? Um, where I was just answering questions or whatnot. But um, I, I have definitely removed myself in those situations. Um, and kind of to, like I said, we need experience train you know and training and and actually you know just a habit of doing it so we should be encouraging as many members as we can to learn how to properly facilitate a meeting and take turns um in illinois if with our coordinating committee we do this every single meeting we say you know who um who wants to facilitate today you know tonight's meeting and it's usually like one of three people Right. But at least those three people are getting it. And we generally, and, you know, maybe once every few months we draw someone new in and maybe they hate it and they never do it again. Or maybe they go, hey, that wasn't that bad. Right. Um, I, I often get in trouble as the secretary who takes notes for jumping the gun on consensus. Um, consensus is weird in that silence means consent. <laughs> like um it's literally you know it's, it's when, i've always kind of objected to that a little bit with uh uh especially when it's done online because yeah. i i don't know if the silence is because of agreement or if because they were dropped from the call or something <laughs> yeah but when you say are there any objections if no one objects if no one says anything then it passes right um and so yeah i i often you know things like approving last month's minutes, which I took in real time and are never objected to. Some some facilitators, will, a good friend of mine is like the slowest of facilitators. They're, they're like, are there any objections? And it seems like 30 seconds go by and no one, and they're just waiting for someone to say something. And I'm over here in the minutes typing approved before we actually approved. But um, you know, having those skilled facilitators is really, really important. Um, the Art of Facilitation by Robert Gass. Um, we have linked a short, like, 15-page version, but then there's a big, you know, few hundred-page version as well. Um, is a great read. The 14 pages is all you need, right? It's a great resource for, for thinking about, you know, the role of a facilitator. Um, one of the really good things, I think, in it um, deals with intervention. Right. Um, one of the key things that an effective facilitator can do is use interventions to guide the discussion to where it needs to go in order to have a clear action oriented outcome. Right. So you can restructure the process. You can use breakouts to talk about specific things. You can use problem solving methods like SWAT, um, you know, to work through an, in, an, an issue differently. Right. When you find yourselves talking in circles. Right. When, when everyone but you but not coming to a resolution that's when you try to restructure right when you when when it, when you've got when you clearly don't have consensus and you need and and you're not making progress through normal discussion um you could that's when you throw in okay let's do a swat on it you know okay let's do the, you know use this method or that method to kind of um, make us talk about it and discuss it differently um we you can refocus content right sometimes discussions get way off on tangents um, and lose track and purpose of the discussion, right? So when that happens, like, hey guys, I need you to remember that we're actually talking about this. This is really interesting, and maybe it should be its own agenda point at a future meeting, but it's not what we're talking about right now, right? And, and getting people back to that point. 
um, redirecting them back in. One of the huge things facilitators can do is managing human dynamics, um, clearing up confusions, right? Uh, I, I've seen too many times. Um, so during Occupy, we used hand signals. Um, and one of the hand signals was point of information. So when someone said, I don't know about this, but I think, boom, I know about that. Here's your answer. You get to jump the line. It's not made, you know, and one of the problems where I saw bad facilitation come in is people abuse it and use it as, I really want to talk right now. That's not what it's for. It's for a factual, you know, response. Um, and that's somewhere where facilitators can come really big in play. You know, when someone, you stop the discussion before it gets onto a hypothetical and find out if someone actually knows the answer to the question. And then you can continue based on that factual ground instead of off of, well, I want, I don't know, but I think, right? Um, that can be really important. Managing dis disagreement towards resolution, right? Super important with interpersonal conflicts. Um, dealing with difficult participants. Um, you know, I, I'm sure Garrett and I have both experienced those. I would say one of the most crippling problems of the steering committee of the Green Party of the United States is its inability to manage disagreements towards resolution. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say some of my uh, most interesting uh, facilitation experiences have been facilitating steering committee calls, uh, which can sometimes get very heated um, because guys, there can sometimes be very uh, strong disagreement on uh, certain topics and directions of things. And it and, can completely derail everything. Oh yeah, it, and it can and it has, unfortunately. And uh, one thing I like to do to, to refocus and, and to clear up confusion and stuff, uh, when I'm facilitating is uh, when somebody starts getting off track, you know, you kind of step in as facilitator and you say, you know, okay, we're discussing X topic. My understanding is right now we have a motion to do blah, is that correct? And then, you know, and then the person will step in and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Or, oh, no, no, that's a little different. Here's what it is. And and that's that tends to be a, a nice way of getting the conversation back on track um, and also um, kind of reaffirming that you're listening to them. Right. <laughs> because a lot of times um, a lot of times the disagreement goes off the rails because somebody feels like they're not being heard. Right. Um and you can hear them without necessarily agreeing with their answer, right? But um, but by kind of repeating it back and saying, "Am I understanding you correctly?" Uh, gives them this, you know, um, the opportunity to kind of clear up uh, confusion and, and move toward um, actually finding a resolution instead of getting too far off topic. Yeah, one of the methods that a friend of mine on the steering committee, when I served, Michael Dennis used to use, um, is they when things got heated, they required people to take a breath before speaking. And so you, you can often get into these debates where it's just like, boom, 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 boom. And they implemented a rule that like you literally before, they would cut you off if you tried. You had to stop and take a few seconds, center yourself, and then respond. Um, and, and while it seems, you know, silly, it works. Um, I, I saw something recently that, um, it was about a, a couple who had a rule that when they got into a fight, they couldn't, they would walk away and they would come back to it after each of them had went and like exercised for 20 minutes. And a, 
like a biologist and a psychologist and like doctors started weighing in and they're like, actually, this is perfect advice because when you get in a fight, when you're in that heated instance, your fight or flight response biologically kicks in. Those, those hormones hit you and you're in fight or flight. And for the next 20, they said it takes about 20 minutes for them to dissipate from your system. And when they're in your system, you cannot have rational conversations, right? Cause you're in fight or flight mode. Um, so the breath is obviously a much lower part of that, but even just the breathing for a couple seconds, taking that deep breath and then going, you know, um, can be enough to kind of calm the conversation so that you can redirect it, right? Um, and that kind of goes into shifting energy, right? Facilitators can put their hands on the scale in terms of the tenor and pace of destruction, right? You can pull in the quieter voice. Um, it's one of the most important rule things I think that, um, you know, I've seen facilitators do uh, in consensus facilitation to say, I haven't heard anything from you, right? And oftentimes, now, sometimes it is like an introvert extrovert thing, but I've seen some, you know, just goddamn wisdom dropped from that person who's been sitting for an hour listening to the, listening to the type A's fight with each other and get asked, what do you think? And they come out and blow us all out of the water, right? But they just weren't comfortable in that situation to insert themselves or they wanted to hear it all and they were absorbing and they needed time to work through it, right? Um, we, we all process things differently. So um, that's one of the, you know, or like not letting an important concern get glossed over. I've seen facilitators do just bang up jobs with that. Like, whoa, you know, someone says something and then they try to move on because often these things are multifaceted that we're talking about, right? being like whoa 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 you can't just move past what that person just said because what they just said is really important to the you know end result of what you're coming out even if it doesn't out with even it doesn't seem like it right now um right so being able to shift that energy um can be really really important it's knowing when to crack a joke right it's knowing when to say okay everybody let's take a bathroom break let's take five minutes and walk away um you know i've I've, I've literally left, I've stormed out of meetings before and had the facilitator chase me down and say, do you want to come back and address this in the meeting? And I, the one time I'm thinking of, I said, no, because I don't want to derail your whole meeting. I don't want to spend the rest of the day on this. I just needed to step away from a minute. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of things that the facilitator can do to help, um, you know, moving that. started bouncing we're, we're long <laughs> so gatekeeping and structurelessness right kind of ties into the same thing um really 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 recommend joe freeman's the tyranny of structurelessness really short read like if you're gonna start a reading group in your local this should be one of the first things you read um because it, it can help you set a tenor for how, how you organize your organization um you know an organization without common policies, without even the means to establish common policies and actions is not decentralized, it's disorganized. Um, Joe Freeman wrote this in response to the organization of the feminist movement in the 80s or in the 70s, um, but it, it applies perfectly to the Green, excuse me, the Green Party today. Um, oh, yeah, we, we had mentioned it earlier on um, yeah. that, uh, 
you know, what one source of internal conflict is when the when the rules are not very clear, and so you have different interpretations or different ideas of how you should proceed, and so then you know folks start butting heads, <laughs> and um, you know that's that's a perfect example of this where not only does it create conflict, but also folks that have been in the party longer, then they start coming out saying, well, you know, in the past the way that we've always handled it is to do blah blah blah. Um, okay, but that's not the rule that was written down. <laughs> like maybe that, maybe you had agreement with a few other people to do that, but now there's a new group of people. They didn't necessarily agree to do those things. They don't necessarily even know that that was the rule that you followed. <laughs> um, so it, even without purpose, accidentally ends up creating um, some level of hierarchy and therefore gatekeeping because um, like I was saying, the elder Elder folks who have been around say, well, here's how we handled it in the past. Why don't you know this? I'm like, well, I, you never taught me. Like, how was I supposed to know it? Because <laughs> you know, um, our and onboarding it, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's um, – so may, maybe it's even a good idea and just new people of the party don't even know it. Uh, but maybe it's also um, an idea that uh, folks don't necessarily agree with or, or maybe is obsolete for whatever reason, right? Like maybe it made sense 20 years ago before the internet was a big thing and <laughs> and now and now we do things differently and that's just how it is. Um, so it's, it's really important to make sure that we're writing down our rules and updating them and making it clear that there's a process to do amendments and update your rules when necessary um, so that, uh, you know, things don't become stagnant um, with, you know, uh, in particular with a few people kind of informally running things. Yeah, having those rules in place is really key. Um, and, you know, it it can slow things down, right? Um, it, it, but it can make, it make sure that things are done democratically, that things are done transparently, that things are done fairly. Um, you know, I, I can think of an instance where, um, you know, someone in my state party had done, had said some things that weren't, uh, you know, within weren't in line with green values. Um, you know, people wanted action taken, um, and I, you know, because we had process. Well, actually, in this case, because it was the one area we didn't have a process in place, um, it became very complicated, right? And we immediately passed a process, and and even people who would have probably voted against me in the vote said, "Well, the fact that there was no process is a problem, and it was an oversight," right? Um, so yeah, it's really important to have these things in place. And, you know, it's really important to, you know, I think this this difference between directive and facilitative is important for greens because as bottom up organizers, we, you know, that we really should be looking as much as we can to facilitative leadership, right? Um, you know, how can I foster the group's ability to envision, collaborate and implement projects so they can own themselves? as opposed to one, you know, one or a small group saying, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Um, it, it's, I, during the Occupy movement, I had a roommate and um, she had never been politically active before. Um, and she got involved in Occupy and she, she kept, she regularly came to me and said, what can I do? And I'd say, what do you want to do? And she'd get, ooh, we had some, some fights over it, you know, good hearted, you know, roommate, like good hearted friend fights. But she came from an experience in her life that was very directive. She wanted, you know, she was used to being told what to do, when, and not having any say in it. You know, whether that be her family life, her work life, her school life, 
all of it, right? And and I think that's important, an important thing for us to understand as organizers, right? Most of us experience the world in through directive hierarchies, right? Through a hierarchical way, right? We don't have a we don't have autonomy in our work, right? Um, we have people who tell us what to do. Um, and so it's really hard for us sometimes, like my friend, right? She just wanted me to tell her what to do. And I kept telling her, if I tell you, I want you to do X, but you're not interested in doing X, you're either going to do a shit job or you're not going to do it at all. Right. So what are you interested? In? So I can find, you know, I can use my knowledge of our organization and I can use our knowledge, my knowledge of what we're doing. And I can use my longevity, you know, having been here for longer to get you plugged into the right place with the right people to do something that you that you care about and that you're passionate about and you feel ownership of and that you'll really deliver a high quality outcome, right? Um, as opposed to saying, well, we need someone to go through the database and clean up our data and clean up our contacts. No one wants to deduplicate contacts. Like, no, like that's the quickest way to chase someone away, right? You know, uh, by giving them that, them that as their first job. But it's really we've been socialized against this against you know non-hierarchical facilitative leadership um it, it really doesn't exist very often in uh capitalist society which we all live in in our day-to-day -day, you know and and we've, we might we, we try to bring a little bit of it into our you know green party organizing yeah we we experienced this locally in pittsburgh um in uh 2017 because after the uh the first bernie sanders campaign you know, naturally, a bunch of Bernie Sanders supporters who were very frustrated with the Democratic Party process, they came to the Green Party, uh, which was great. Um, but then a few months later, a bunch of them left. Now, part of that is probably that we weren't as organized as we should have been. And, you know, we should acknowledge that and do better. But part of it is also that, um, you know, I saw firsthand that many of them, because they came from the Bernie Sanders campaign and they were used to doing work within the Democratic Party, they were used to this directive hierarchy sort of thing. So they came into the Green Party and they said, put me to work. Tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, and, and we were like, you know, I. What do you want? It? What do you like? Yeah, what are your I, skills? And they're like, that doesn't matter. Just tell me what to do. Right. You know, and, and um, you know, where, where we failed probably was that we didn't have a good onboarding and education process to, to say you know, um, here's a here's a list of things that that we could do, you know, where's your interest or, you know, what sort of training would you like to receive uh, so that we can help you go organize your community. And um, they had never really thought of that before, right? They, they were never asked to organize their community. They were used to say to someone telling them, here's a thousand flyers, go to this neighborhood and drop off a flyer at every house. <laughs> they weren't used to doing things like door knocking and having really deep conversations with people as an example. Um, and so, you know, again, that was something that we probably should have been more prepared for um, locally um, to educate and to train. Um, but also, um, I don't think that we fully really understood <laughs> that when we did uh, suggest things to people, that it didn't make quite as much sense to them because they were used to this directive thing as opposed to this uh, facilitative, you know, um, I want to help you with your community as opposed to, you know, go do this thing. Um, so, uh, it's very important to keep that in mind too. And it's one of the, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, the, the decades long failed project of stealing enough progressive Democrats from the democratic party to become viable as the greens, right? Um, one of the reasons that's been a failed policy is because people coming from that, you know, um, 
people coming from that background have these bad habits, right? They've been they've been conditioned to expect this top-down hierarchical leadership, um, and don't know how to respond. Or I've also seen instances where they use it to try to manipulate the party, um, right? Not just talking about you know burners or anything like that, but um, you know uh, I've I've definitely seen you know people try to imp- push in with strong leadership within. Of a, you know within a non-hierarchical system and if your membership isn't solid in that non-hierarchical system right if you're if your membership isn't uh, willing and able to lockstep in defense of these values um they can very they can very easily be pushed aside by a, you know a hierarchical centralized uh push um so that's you know something we have to we have to deal with over time and um you know, the facilitative that that non-hierarchical system has its weaknesses, but um, it also has it. It's very much has its strengths in um, in creating something different, right? And that's what we're trying to do. I think we we always need to remember that, right? That we're trying to forge a new path, not follow one that's already been that's already been blazed, because the path we're looking for doesn't have you know any any examples really. Um, you know, we we've got projects we can learn from. Um, we have we have movements and experiences and and theorists we can learn from, but um, you know the the unique conditions under which we're organizing now means that no one's taken the steps in the exact order that we're going to take them. Um, and so, facilitative organizing is really really important to that because it takes the blinders off that directive you know leadership can often get into um, where where people can't see beyond the way they think. And the, their their hierarchical position allows them to you know negate the idea the outside the box ideas that can come from others. And you know to to riff on that real fast, um, I guess kind of a closing argument, right? Because I think we're getting toward the end here. Um, for us to build a movement for a new type of politics and a new type of society, uh, we have to make structures and go down paths that are different than what became before, because we, we're not trying to be the next democratic party, right? We're not trying to be the next Republican party or whatever it is. Uh, we're not trying to be the major party in the system that exists today. We're trying to create a new system and be part of that new system. Uh, but it's a new system. It'll work differently. Um, it should work differently if it's, if it's built on our green values of, you know, local democracy and social justice and, uh, you know, all the, the key values, right? Um, but one way to get there is that people are, are naturally, um, they can be skeptical of politicians and politics in general. But especially if you're telling folks, like, we need this new system, there's a little bit of skepticism, right? About like, well, even if I don't like the thing that exists today, how do we know that your system is going to be better? Like, is, is it going to be worse? It, you know, um, there's that kind of natural worry and fear um and the one of the best ways to overcome it is to experience it ourselves to create it ourselves and to um to get practice in it when we talk about a new system if we only talk about it abstractly theoretically we're not so convincing if we can say we've done it this way in my community and my local party and all and here's how it's worked we've been doing it for five years ten years whatever and it's worked great and like look at all the things we've accomplished that's a lot more convincing to people that we're on the right track. 
and it allows you to uh, to speak from personal experience as opposed to just theory, right? You know, which again is more convincing. Um, so it's very important for us to practice our values, to put our, our values into um, uh, into action, experience it ourselves. And we and do it through all these ways, like uh, building facilitative leadership, building non-hierarchical structures, uh, you know, um, uh, creating restorative justice processes, uh, creating consensus processes. All of these things are outside of what people expect in capitalism. So we have to learn how to do it and teach ourselves it because the capitalist system isn't going to teach us these things. Um, so it's important for us to do it. And it's also important for us to, I think, give ourselves a little bit of slack <laughs> here because we're teaching ourselves new skills. It's not always going to work perfectly, but we will all get better at it together as we practice it more. And if we're trying to achieve something, if we're trying to forge a new path using the same tools and systems and methods that have gotten us on this one, that's not working we're setting ourselves up for failure right if we if we try to replicate the po the political model of the republicans and democrats to create something different than the outcomes that the republicans and democrats get um, we're we're really lying to ourselves about the ability you know about our ability to actually achieve what we say we want to achieve um you know so it, it's something to keep uh, keep in mind to close out i want to jump back to one of the one we skipped and give some some affirmations on finding direction. Um, we had said at the beginning, right, that we were gonna kind of go over a little bit from uh, our previous how to build a local um, organizing 101 session. Uh, we obviously are we're over time already, so we don't uh, we're not gonna get into that. But you should go you know go to greensocialist.net/slash101s and check that out because um, it does get into a lot of you know the strategy of actually building something. And so that that that's a good resource. But you know, to close out for tonight, some affirmations on finding direction. No one needs permission to begin organizing their communities. Yes, you can do it. Um, no one has. You don't have to go ask permission to start work, doing work in your community. Um, just start doing the work, and you know, if you build it, they will come. Type thing, right? Um, good organizing is first and foremost built on trust and real relationships. Uh, working class people rightfully don't trust politicians. Actions, not words, are what matters. I can't emphasize this enough. Um, right in, in electoral politics, we talk about touches. Right, how many times you need to talk and you know you need to interact with a voter before they vote for you. Um, but beyond that, right, people aren't. You change minds. You move people. You motivate people. You activate and engage people into action by having them trust you you know you, that doesn't happen because you have a good platform right it, it happens because you've been with them they know you right um the platforms don't mean anything political platforms really don't mean anything right 94 percent of democrats support medicare for all but the democratic party as an institution doesn't right same thing with climate change, same thing with, you know, police reform, across the board, we're seeing, you know, we see the, the base of the Democratic Party supporting policies that the, the institutional party and the politicians that lead it are nowhere near uh, where their base is and, and the, they're the ones who lead, right? The base gets left behind. Um, so if we want to change people's minds, we've got to get there on the, the real relationships. Um, don't let yourself get overwhelmed. Start with one or two things. 
Um, Andrew Hager had asked about, you know, getting it together and learning to quit procrastinating in the chat. That's the key one, right? Capitalism has create has is nearly total in our in our world, right? It's not just an economic system anymore, like you know, in the days of Marx. It's completely melded in with culture, um, and because of that, like nearly every aspect of our society needs radical transformative change. And I, I don't even want to call it radical, right? It's capitalism that's radical. It's capitalism that's extremist, right? The, it's capitalism that's oppressive and exploitative, but we need transformative change through basically every part of our society. And that sets us up as you know, independent socialist organizers to feel very overwhelmed, to not know where to start, to pick up too much because we just have to do something. Um, start with one or two things, start with something that's achievable and let it snowball, right? Um, don't, don't start with, you know, the, the thing that you're never going to do. Don't take it off the, off your list, right? It's, it's the top of the list. You need to, you need to build a ladder of rungs that you can step up to get to that point. Um, make sure you do the prep work and planning. If you're always shooting from the hip, it's hard to be effective. Decide on measures and metrics to determine if the action was successful. Super important to Greens, especially in electoralism, right? Um, if you run your rate, if you run for office and your only metric is did I win or lose, you're most likely going to lose, right? And I don't mean just the election, but I mean overall, right? It's gonna, you're not going to benefit from that run. Um, how, you know, you need lots of metrics and lots of kind of lines of what a win is. We need to reevaluate what a win is, um, because we're, we're, this is David and Goliath, y'all. Like we, we're not going to get that one shot kill with the slingshot every time. Um, we need, we need to build up, we need to organize. So we need to make sure that we're, we're setting achievable goals and stepping stones that can get us to that point that we don't need that one shot with the that one lucky shot with a slingshot right we, where we can come and actually stand our own um there's no one method to organize learn and adapt ideas from others do what it makes sense for you your community and your goals right um we i, I mentioned earlier the the old dead guys right they've still got some good ideas we can learn from right and some of the things that work for the old dead guys won't work for us today and some of the things that didn't work for the old dead guys will work for us today and some of the things that will work for us today the old dead guys couldn't even envision because the world is so different right so we we've got to be able to adapt we've got to be able to learn we've got to understand that we're, we're forging a new path not following an old one but forging a new path and that takes you know adapt, adapting um and there are very few resources like this, right? Andrew Hager also said, I'd like to receive training and education. I need to organize any community I'd like to form. It's hard to find resources on how to do that independently of the capitalist class, of capitalist politics, right? Um, most, most resources are oriented towards not-for-profits and advocacy groups. Um, so just like the one above, right, when we said we need to learn and adapt, we don't ignore those things, right? We look at those things that have been put out. We look at the tactics that are being used and we adapt them to our own needs. We adapt them to what we can do, right? Um, we talked, if you go back and watch our first 101, like we just kept repeating this point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Over and over and over. Cause we're like, we, we were talking about things like um, William Foster's organizing in the steel industry. 
right? It's about, it's a hundred year old text about how to organize in a, you know, a manual labor job. But we, but it has some great, great, great methods on how to actually grow an organization that we can apply to our independent political organizing. We just kind of have to like tweak it a little, right? You know what I mean? So we really have to, you know, the resources aren't out there. So we really got to go up to that previous one um, and be adaptable, right? It's like, it's like when people ask who, you know, what news sources people read like hopefully all of them and we were able to filter right we're able to read through the lines we were able to read biases right um you know that kind of thing so um you know those are some affirmations um to close out garrett you got anything yeah uh no i think i just agree with all those things and i um I think our goal for 2023 is to create more of those resources because there's not really a whole lot on independent organizing. Um, so that that's that's certainly my personal goal, and I think the whole Green Socialist Organizing Project's goal for 2023. Uh, we want to grow strong locals, and we want to give you resources that will help uh, to do that. So uh, if you're listening, thank you for listening. And second, if there's any specific resources or manuals or something like that that you would like to see, you know, leave some comments below um, or send an email. You know, uh, yep, there it is on the screen. Send an email to Chris. Uh, check out the greensocialist.net website uh, and let us know what you'd like to see in 2023. Yeah, yeah. Twenty. We're going to keep doing these 101s. Um, they're going to look quite a bit different. We're not quite sure how. Um, I don't think we're going to be doing our – our three repeat, three repeat, three repeat, three repeat. Um, but I do think you could very well see, you know, those three done at least once or twice. Um, while we're also kind of expanding our our discussions with these one on ones and going into other things, um, I'll also say, you know, from the uh, you know thinking about what our education group's looking at in 2023, um, we're going to be really focused, like Garrett said, on local organizing and developing as many resources as we can to help people, um, you know, get their local green parties up and going because local bottom up local, local first is the only way that we're going to grow this party um, into what we need it to be. Um, you know, only by electing, you know, local people to local office, seeing them in action, you know, testing out our ideas. Can we build up the power that we can win on the state level, that we can win on the federal level, that we can win on the presidential level, right? Um, it's a building process and it starts bottom up with our locals. Um, so we're really going to be focusing in heavy on, um, you know, local local stuff and the resources that you all need to, uh, you know, to effectively organize in your local communities. That said, um, Thank you everybody for being in our too long, for attending our too long workshop. Um, these are just, that's one thing we learned during these one-on-ones, like there's so much information, right? We had to skip a third of the slides. Um, the, the, the scale of what we're talking about with organizing, with socialism, with, you know, organizing and socialism, mainly Green Party, we can go on for hours, but that's more, you know, babbling. Um, these are just so overwhelming of topics that they're huge. So um, you can, you know, sign up at greensocialist.net. Um, 
You can email me at chris at hollyhawkins.us if you want to get involved in our education working group. Um, like I said, we're trying to put together local resources. We've got Howie's weekly podcast that we put on. We're working on another podcast. Um, I'm sure we'll do plenty of one-offs and things like that throughout the year. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'd uh, love to have you by our side and uh, stop and Garrett and me from burning out. <laughs> have a uh, have a good new year everyone and we will see you next month